Ashlandborough. Is that what her where was? <laughs> you, yeah, that's okay, what you yeah. said. Ash, Ashlandborough. Ashland well, okay, so we're now, we're now on the like snack time. This is a very important segment here on Withy Wendell. Yep. Let, just let me finish off this. Uh, well, no, no, don't finish it off because my snack oh. that I brought is you can hear it crinkling here. It is it's Girl Scout cookies, Thin Mints. Mm. So I want to propose that we use these Thin Mint cookies. Oh. To make our own Oreos using jar of frosting from Ashlandboro, North Carolina. Yeah. 100 stuff Oreo frosting. And yeah. make our own with the mint flavor. I love this. Okay, here. You take. Here, okay, here's yep. some for you. Okay. Now. Here. Just scoop this on. Let's here. scoop it on here. All right. Sorry, there let's wasn't scoop. as much okay. as there was this morning. <laughs> I had this for breakfast and lunch, so. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, that makes sense. And we didn't say snack time starts and ends at this thing. It's just always, it's always right. snack exactly. Perpetual okay. snack time. Let's, you know what? Let's take a bite. We're gonna take a little break. We'll come back in a second. Tell people about the episode. But we've because it's gonna take it's gonna honestly take us a half hour probably to eat these mega stuff. No mega stuff's a thing. Hundred stuff Oreos with, with Girl Scout cookies. So we'll be right back. Uh, and we're back. Okay, so actually, David undersold this. This is now the next day. <laughs> it took us an entire day to eat that. We camped. We camped out. We camped. Yeah. What What is your favorite Girl Scout cookie? Well, I do really like the Thin Mints, you know, like yeah. in the freezer. I really like the Samoa ones, the oh, coconut so the good. and the caramel or whatever that is. Do you have like a Dark Horse favorite? For the lemon ones. But you know what I found mm. out? That every couple of years, they they make a new lemon cookie. What does that mean? What, what do you they, mean? Like they have a lemon flavor is something they like to do, but they don't do the same one all the time. Like it's always the same Thin Mint. Wait, so that. you can't get nostalgic for this? I just can't find it. <laughs> <laughs> So <laughs> I was at the grocery store and I walked out and there were the Girl Scouts there. Right? Yeah. And like, you can't not buy cookies from the Girl Scout. Yeah. So I wanted the lemon ones and yeah. I said, do they still make those lemon ones that are like, they're like about the circumference of a baseball? Like that's the, it's like oh, big. The word. Yeah, they're pretty big. But then on the bottom, they're iced. So it's not. Oh, that sounds great. It's, and it's like when you, when they're cold. They're, that's like, that sounds like something I'd be nostalgic for if I've ever had it before. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, I am. But and they then, told me that they have different lemon cookies and now because they, they rotate through. Did the Girl Scout sigh and say, oh, this again? Pretty much. And she had to explain the whole, you know, she gets that question every five minutes. Pretty much, but, you know, I gave her 10 bucks. And... So my favorite is the Thin Mint. And I would eat an entire sleeve and have before. Don't do that, though. You don't so, feel good afterwards. Are we still on snack time? I'm just curious about these girls. Yeah, uh, we're 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 in the epilogue of snack oh, time. Okay, okay. We're ex- we're in extended time, <laughs> extended snack time. What do they call that thing at the end of the credits, like after the credits in a the mo- stinger in a, in a movie? Yeah, this is the snack time stinger. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I love the thin mint. I love mint, and I know people don't. I, I know. Well, I know that when we go get ice cream or milkshakes or whatever, I feel like you're always getting something mint. Mint, yeah. Mint and, and, Oreo, and whenever mint people chip. don't like mint flavor, they always say. It tastes like toothpaste, to which I reply, toothpaste is delicious tasting. <laughs> That's why they make it that flavor. Don't eat it, but it's delicious. <laughs> well, there are degrees of, of the mintiness. But anyway, we're here on the first episode of season three. Mm. This is going to be an amazing season. Agreed. We have some wonderful guests, and we actually can start saying some names, but we're only going to say this week's. We should say next week's, too, because then people okay. can email us at podcasts. At goldberrybooks.com. That's a great idea. Mm-hmm. I like this idea. So this week, we are going to be talking to the great 
the stupendous, the amazing Kate DiCamillo. She is the author of books like Because of Winn-Dixie and The Tale of Despero and others that we will talk about here in a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Next week, who's our guest? Uh, next week is Tim Probert, who is the author and illustrator of I almost say Windfall. Lightfall. <laughs> yeah, one of our favorite graphic novels. And there's a second one coming in Very April. Very soon. Yep, yeah, this month. And that is not an April Fool's joke. That's not. It, I, I don't know the exact date it comes out, but it's uh, I believe weeks, it's April 26th. Weeks, not months. That's right. If you've never read Lightfall, now is a great time to get your hands on that and read it this week before he comes on next week. And if you have questions for Mr. Tim, send them to us. What's that email again? Podcasts at goldberrybooks.com podcast at goldberrybooks.com. So we're going to talk to Tim Probert next week. This week we're going to talk to Kate DiCamillo, and we'll tell you a little bit about her in a few minutes. But, Graham, we also are going to be doing a book again, because this is a book podcast, and so we're going to have a book club, period. And the book this season is going to be called... Well, actually, it's not going to be called. It is called <laughs> The Phantom Tollbooth. And we're also going to tell you about that in a few minutes. Oh. But before we get to that, mm. we have a new segment. It's the time we we previewed this last week. We told people, we promised people that there is going to be a new segment. Yes, Graham, you're the keeper of the new segment. I'm the you're keeper the, of the segment. You're I the hope not. you're the master of the new segment. It's a lot of responsibility. You are the boss of the new segment. You are the chief new segment. Er, are you ready to reveal to us, Captain O segment, sir, what the new segment is? This segment is going to be called Lazy Words. Lazy Words. All right. That's actually a little too scary. What's the, how, what's the right tone of voice to do Lazy Words? Lazy, lazy Words. Lazy Words. Wait, what does Lazy Words mean? So, I've been compiling over the years. Like, how many years? Probably like 10 years. <laughs> okay. Whenever, <laughs> okay, so the English language is funny. All uh-huh. language is probably kind of funny. I don't know. I don't speak any of the other ones. Um, so the English <laughs> you one. You speak Canadian. I, yeah, true. Uh, and that's very funny. Um, <laughs> so I've been compiling a list of words that I think are funny based on their overall laziness. Now, this laziness is subjective. You mean like they're not doing a lot of work? I mean that, l- l- let's say somebody... Name? Oh, you mean like it was the wrong, like whoever named it was being lazy? That's what I mean. Okay. <laughs> okay. Or that's how I feel. Okay, okay, okay. These might not necessarily be lazy words, but I think they're funny Okay. because I feel like they're lazy. But and they're I not think, that creative. Yeah. Okay. Like um, most of them are, or a lot of them are compound words, which means they put two other words together to form right. a word. Okay. Like this week's lazy word. Okay, what is it? This week's lazy word is roller coaster. Okay. Okay. So why do you feel like that's a lazy word? All right. So if you take the word roller coaster. Imagine you're going on a roller coaster thinking about how yeah. roller coasters. Oh, and it, okay. So let me back up a second. English is kind of funny because you learn it. You learn all the words. You're, you know, you just start speaking when you're young and everything just becomes normal and you don't think about it anymore. But every True. once in a while, a word pops out at you. Maybe you've read it a bunch of times in a row or said it a bunch of times in a row, and you're like, whoa, that's kind of weird word, actually, now that I see it a lot or think about it a lot. Like so the roller, word, the. So roller coaster was one that popped out to me because I was like, this word just describes two of the things that the roller coaster it does. It rolls and coasts. It rolls and coasts. <laughs> and, and so I feel like 
for for a machine, an epic fun machine to have. I see what you're saying. A very lazy name like roller coaster, and not uh, two descriptives that aren't even the best ones. Like it could be called <laughs> speeder twister. Yeah. That's okay. I see like, what you're saying. See, that sounds more yeah. fun. Okay. Yeah. So this week's lazy word: roller. Coaster. So should we solve this problem for the universe and come up with a new term? That's you, you're ahead of me. That is exactly what I think lazy word should be. We should identify the word okay. we feel like is lazy, okay. <laughs> and Roller then coaster. propose new words. So speeder twister. If we're gonna just compound a couple, yeah. If we're just gonna take that model. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, what about uh, the whirly gagger? <laughs> what? Oh, okay. It, it, it's just off the top of your head there. Immediately a better name. <laughs> Immediately. I like it when, yeah, Whirly, that sounds fun. Gagger sounds dangerous. That's true. Perfect. <laughs> per- uh, we did it. What about the flippity floppiter? Nah, it's a mouthful. Well, I guess so is roller coaster. Yeah, but you're flipping and you're flopping. You're just tied in. Yeah. yeah. What about? What about the faller outer? No, that doesn't sound <laughs> that's good. That's not, not good. That's not great. Good. No. What about the super stellar... Action rider, smoke on your tail maker. Okay, I like the enthusiasm. Too much. It's too much. What about boom? Just boom. Yeah. I could go for it. I think it's better. I think we're going to go to the park and we're going to ride the boom. And when you write it, you have to write it in all caps right. and draw like a little explosion around it. Right. Exactly. I love exactly. this. Okay. Okay, but. We came up with some good ideas, but I think the kids oh, should also the, send us. The listeners, they need to, to, you guys, you, for, the, for the sake of the English language, listener, think of a better name for roller coaster. You are English's only hope. Well, e- each of you are part of English's, English's only, only hope. hope. You're, yes. not the, you're not the only one, but you and all of the people who are listening are all... The only hope. I'm confused now about the way only hope works. Okay, so, so people, how are people going to send us the again podcast? Oh, the email, the email at goldberrybooks.com. Send us your idea <laughs> for what you think roller coaster should be renamed. We'll compile them if we get enough of them, and maybe post them on our Instagram. Or maybe we'll share a few in the next episode. Oh, that's a great idea. When we share the next lazy word. But Graham, you know what this brings us to, right? Uh, refresh me. The next segment. Oh. <laughs> I I should have known. I shouldn't. It it's always book, it's book time. It always comes around. It's book time. I know. You finish one segment, and then you got the next. <laughs> so we're going to talk to our our guest this week. That's Katie Camillo, of course. But first, we got to talk about introduce the kids to the Phantom Tollbooth. Now, this is a book by the the author's name is Norton Juster. Yes. This is a book from 1961. And it's a mm. children's fantasy adventure novel, um, and famously the illustrations are by Jules Pfeiffer, I think is how you say it, yeah. F-E-I-F-F-E-R. Yeah, that's now, right. You've read this book, right? A few times, but n- but probably not in 10 years. So yeah, it's I'm, been a while for me, too. I'm super excited. But, I, I, I know I love this book. Now, if I'm not mistaken, there is a, a um, human in your house who also likes this book. A human? Yeah. Okay, that rules yeah. out one... Living being. <laughs> don't uh, say who. Don't say who. <laughs> yeah, my son. I don't want to guess. <laughs> yes, my son uh, really loves this book. He, we uh, got it from the library on. You're C- referring to Gerald, right? 
Gerald. Your son, Gerald? My son, Gerald. Um, oh, he, he doesn't like to go by that? No, he prefers his actual name, uh, which is Rowan. So the fact that I've been calling him Gerald all these years, I'm not supposed to we, do that? We don't like conflict, so I haven't, I haven't pointed it out. I um, see. Well, at least we, we brought it up on the air in front of everybody. <laughs> Rowan, I apologize. I will no longer call you Gerald. <laughs> at least to your face. Uh, I was going to say our nickname for him, but um, I'll save that for a later episode because <laughs> that's a funny story, too. Um, but when he was probably five or six, Bell. we got it from the uh, library on CD. <laughs> this is when our <laughs> CD player still worked. Yeah, it was house. a real thing, yeah. And he would listen to it. He's probably listened to it a dozen times. Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a really fun book. And, okay, so I think it would be good if we just summarize the story because there's probably a lot of kids who are like the Phantom Tollbooth. By Norton Juster from the '60s. I've never heard of that book. What? Yeah, but the way you just said the Phantom. Just l- listen to that title. The well, Phantom. I don't mean that when you hear that the must title, be a bore. Yeah, okay, fair. I don't mean that when you hear the title, you are no longer going to think that you, that's something you want to read. It's just maybe a book that not a lot of kids have heard of. Okay, it's it's, it's a classic, but it's and you, also a little. Older. And so you want us just to tell tell no, the kids all about it and, and yeah, spoilers. I think we, why don't we just spoilers? tell the whole story over the next hour? And then why don't we tell the whole story over the next 10 weeks, a couple chapters at a time? Okay, okay, we'll do that then. (laughs) That's fair. So this is a story that follows a bored young boy named Milo who unexpectedly receives a magic toll booth that transports him to the once prosperous but now troubled Kingdom of Wisdom. That is true. So that's that's the basic. But there's also a dog. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a quest. There's a oh, castle yeah. in the air. Mm. There's exiled princesses, mm. and apparently, like, there's probably like valuable lessons and things like that along the way. So, so we're gonna yeah. we're, we're gonna read this book. We're gonna talk about it. And how many chapters should we do for next week? Uh, just the first two. First two. Two chapters. Two chapters. All right. And those are chapters month and tooth. As we have. Speaking of the English language being weird, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not English, so... Uh, but I do feel like by using the terms one, two, three, fourth, and stuff, we have solved a lot of problems for people who use the English language. True. Consistency. Podcast. Yeah, consistency, that's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so would, is there anything you want to add, like anything that kids should be prepared for or look out for or you're excited about even in the Phantom Tollbooth? I would say prepare for twists. And turns. Oh, this sounds like roller coaster talk again. <laughs> Twists and turns. A roller coaster of an experience. And a lot of fun. And a little bit of nervous excitement. This again, roller coaster. And so one of the reasons we wanted to do this book, besides all the things that you just described, is that the author, Norton Juster, he passed away in 2021, mm-hmm. last year. And he was 91 years old, and he's a great author. And we thought... What better way to honor him and to celebrate his life and his career by reading one of his books with all of you on this podcast where we celebrate kids' books. Absolutely. um, And did you know he was a working architect his entire life? You just did a thing with your hand. You said a working architect, and then you did a gesture. His entire life. Okay, I see. His entire life. Okay. He wasn't like an architect, published a book that got really famous, and then was like, I'm going to be an author. He was just like a, a pretty celebrated architect. And I think that when the kids read this book with us, there's going to be some things that when they read it, they're going to think, okay, yeah, I can see how an architect would write this book. Yeah, this guy knows how to build a book. Yeah. Build a world. Exactly. Build a story. And, of course, building a book, that concept is something we talk about a lot here on the podcast when we talk to the authors, which, of course, brings us to this week's guest, the great, the wonderful, the awesome. I don't remember what the other adjectives were that I used. Would you like to throw an adjective in here for Kate DiCamillo? 
splendiferous. The, the splendiferous KD Camillo. So we're going to take a quick break. We're going to eat some more uh, Oreos and a uh, jar of icing. And we'll be back to introduce you to KD Camillo. So just hold your horses, all right? <laughs> Okay, we're back. It's time for our conversation with Kate DiCamillo. What is one thing you most enjoyed about this conversation with Kate DiCamillo? Because I thought we had a great time. She was hilarious. Oh, that's a good one. She was. And I also enjoyed her quiz answers. As the master of the quiz. You're master of the segments and also the quiz. I also enjoyed the quiz questions. (laughs) (laughs) But now I'm just pumping my own tires. That's true. That's true. Well, you know, if they're flat, you can't get far. So, especially on a penny farthing. <laughs> I mean, if it was, what could you can you ride a penny farthing if just that little wheel in the back is flat, but the big front one is still going? You know, the best can thing you just drag that wheel along like a limp leg. The best thing about a penny farthing, and listeners, you might not know. This, <laughs> can't wait for this. <laughs> the wheels are not made out of rubber filled with air; they're just solid brass. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't have to worry about flat, okay. about flat tires. I got it. Okay. They're just, you can run over a nail or a elephant. Yeah, you'd yeah, be fine. Exactly. Yeah. Isn't bra- brass is kind of a soft metal, isn't it? I don't know. <laughs> I don't anyway. Know. So, Kate so Kate Camillo. Did you know that Kate DiCamillo's given name is Katrina? Katrina DiCamillo? No, I did not know that. She is a American author and she has published, guess how many novels she's published? 13. More. 14. <laughs> Graham, this is going to take forever. 29. Over 25. So maybe 29. Yeah. Over 25 novels, including books like Because of Winn-Dixie, The Tiger Rising, The Tale of Despero, The Miraculous Journey of Edward Tulane, The Magician's Elephant, The Mercy Watson series, and Flora and Ulysses. Guess how many books she has sold? How many copies of her books have been sold? 13 million <laughs> 37 million copies of her books have been sold. Four of them have been made into films and two of them into adapted musical uh, settings. She's won a bunch of awards, including the Newbery Medal. And guess how many Newbery Medals she's won? Two. That's right. Two. I thought you were going to guess 13 again. Uh, I didn't fail the quiz. She's. she's eh, we'll see. That's just the first question. Uh. She is one of only six authors to have won two Newbery Medals, which is the big award that are, is given to authors of kids' books. She is a wonderful conversationalist. She's a great person to talk to about books. She had great advice for all the, for all of you who are listening. And as Graham mentioned, she is hilarious. She also has a new book out that was published last year. It's called The Beatrice Prophecy, and we talk a little bit about that as well. So if uh, you haven't read The Beatrice Prophecy, but you really like Kate Camillo's books, you absolutely should go to the library or find the audiobook or go to your local bookstore uh, and and get your hands on The Beatrice Prophecy and, and read that as fast as possible. It's really good. So with that, Graham, what do you say we kick it over to our conversation with Kate Camillo? Yes. On a scale of one to one, how great was this conversation? Thirteen. Indeed. Well, KT Camilla, we are thrilled to be chatting with you. Um, you're a, you're like a, what do they call it, a bucket list interview for us here on Withy Wendell. So thank you so oh. much for coming on. Although I hope that it doesn't mean that we're both about to die. <laughs> or me either, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it hasn't even started yet and I'm already having fun. So um, <laughs> I'm in. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, great. Um, we have a bunch of questions here from the kids who listen to this podcast, who read your book. Um, we got a bunch of questions sent in that are uh, both generally about you, but then also about your books. Uh, but we have to go to an old standby question. We ask this question to every guest who comes on our podcast first. I think it was a, a kid named Aiden who first asked this, and it went over so well, we return to it every season. So here in season three, we're bringing it back. Are you ready for the most important question that you're going to uh, experience or have have put forth on this interview? Yes, I, I feel properly serious and prepared. When you are snacking, are you a Cheetos or a Doritos fan? Oh, God, that's so easy. It's it, I, I, flaming hot, crunchy Cheetos. That, yeah, it's just like, and of course, it's like, I mean, no one has to think about that. Do people actually say Doritos? <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, I and say, I, 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 is Kate the first person to, to put the qualifier flaming hot before Cheetos too? I don't know if anybody's ever guessed or, or selected that one. I, I love, I love those so much. And, you know, I, I have to say though, in, in defense of Doritos that I, um, this is a long time ago. It wouldn't mean anything to kids, but I was probably, I was in my thirties and I watched, um, <laughs> It doesn't make any difference what I was watching. I ate a whole bag of whole ranch Doritos. Uh-huh. And that was it for me. You know, well, that was the end. Yeah. And it's just yeah. like that never came back into, into rotation after that. <laughs> yeah. A that can, bag that can... in one sitting, you know, a big bag. Yeah. yeah. That gets part... rid of that desire. Yeah. The party size bag. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That, can ha- that can happen too much of a good thing, right? Right. So is so, it the, with the flaming hot, is it like, do you feel like a little bit of punishment while you're eating? Is there? I love spicy foods, so I and I've never been able. And it's a question that my friends ask me all the time too. It's just like, why do you want it so hot that you that you feel dizzy? And I don't know. <laughs> I can't answer it. So what's your favorite? Like, are do you eat Indian food? Is it Thai food? Do you want? You know, what is it, you know, these yes, traditionally spicy yes, foods, yes. are you going as hot as you can? Yes, yeah, Thai, Thai, I, I love Thai. Um, I love Indian. Uh, I love any food that somebody makes uh, for me. Um, and, <laughs> and, and and then if they can, I you know, I don't cook at all, but um, uh, I grew up with, uh, my, my father was Italian, so with Italian hot peppers, and um, I've never cooked them, but I can... I can tell somebody exactly how to do it so that I can uh, have them all the time. <laughs> so you mentioned that you're Italian. We do have some other food questions um, here in a second, but what is your favorite Italian dish? If you had to choose, what is it? What are you, what are you, what are you eating? Oh, golly. I mean, really, I, I, I hate to, to be so predictable, but I, I love pizza in every incarnation. So my Italian grandmother made fantastic pizza, but I mm. also like pizza that is like turning on, um, you know, the, like the convenience store kind of like, oh, yeah. I, I like yeah. that too. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's just a winner no matter, uh, with crushed red pepper flakes on it. To add yeah, spice. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Food, a couple more food questions that the kids have asked. Are you generally a fan of sweet food or savory food? I mean, we already know you're a fan of spicy food, but if you have to choose between sweet and savory, oh, what do you savory, choose? Savory, totally savory. Okay. Yeah. Coffee or tea? <laughs> Coffee. 
That, I would say that that's the question. That is the answer we get most of the time. Yeah, I was going to say, no, no real writer is going to be And then uh, cake or cookies if you have to go sweet? I, uh, cookies, yeah. Yeah, I'll, you know, yes, cookies. But give me a potato chip. Give me a spicy hot Cheeto, yeah. So when you're writing, are you a snacker? Are you, are you eating not. these? Okay. No, no, I don't snack at all. I just, like, uh, wait until whoever it is is going to feed me, and then I shove as much food in my mouth as I can when I'm at their house. (laughs) So, okay, before we move on to some other very serious questions, and we Uh talk about your new book, can you tell us exactly how we're supposed to properly pronounce your name? Because I'm sure there's the way that people pronounce it, and then there's the way that your father pronounced it. Uh, DiCamello? Yeah, Yeah. it's just Um, how it looks. Uh, it is how it looks. Um, people want to sometimes make those L's silent, yeah, but yeah. in Italian, you, you say the L's. So decamello. And, um, as a mnemonic device uh, or a helpful device, I sometimes say think mellow, even though I am the antithesis of mellow. I'm <laughs> one of the most neurotic people you're ever going to meet. But yeah, decamello. You mean, I think you mean you're a writer, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you know, I figured, you know, it's a, we, we could set the record straight because in our bookstore, I've had people say your name in, you know, both ways. So now it's officially on the record on the Withy Whittle podcast, how to say, say your name from the, directly from the source. Yeah. So I feel better now. Yeah. I feel like I can point people to And you said it right in the very beginning and I was impressed with you. <laughs> <laughs> my two semesters of Italian in college that I don't remember at all. Um, so uh, we've got lots of questions, of course. Uh, Graham's gonna gonna dive into some of those, but could you just give us um, a little bit of a summary about your newest book? Um, you, I'm sure you spent years working on it. It's out in the world now. Um, it's called the Beatrice Prophecy, and you know, for the kids who maybe have read your other classics but haven't read that one yet what 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 inspired that what's the what's the deal with that book so generally open it up like that yeah and you know it's it's i always feel kind of like um i did a i did a a, an interview with a librarian a a few days ago and i i apologized for not being able to book talk as well as um librarians and booksellers (laughs) just like so what is the book about the book is about um a girl named beatrice who has uh, forgotten kind of who she is. She she only remembers her name. And she can read and write. And it's in a time and place where it is against the law for uh, a girl or a woman to do either one of those things. It's in a, mm. it's in a time and place when only a handful of people can uh, read and write. And so this is the story of Beatrice finding her way home kind of. And uh, along the way, she becomes friends with uh, a goat named Answalika and a monk named Brother Etic and a boy named Jack Dory. So, um, and where did it come from? It's always a mystery to me. <laughs> you know, uh, this was a book that I started um, a long time ago, put in a, uh, it ended up in a pile in uh, my, the closet in my writing uh, space and I mm. I unearthed it um, three years ago and mm. and thought oh wow okay this is a story that I want to tell so then I went back to it so I've been carrying it around for a long time part mm. of that time unwittingly so 
Does that happen to you a lot where you start something Uh, and then you put it aside? No, it's actually kind of like, um, it's a little bit unsettling, um, that (laughs) it, it did happen. There's a, there's a part in the Beatrice prophecy where Beatrice keeps on having this dream of, uh, of someone showing her a seahorse and the seahorse falling. And I would think of that uh, scene periodically and think, where did I read that? And I, in, in those, in those years in between where I forgot about it. And it's, so it's almost like writing it was kind of like writing something that I remembered rather than something that I was making up. I don't know. It was all kind of an odd experience. Should we do some psychoanalysis? <laughs> <laughs> you bring in some kids and let them tell you what's up. <laughs> They're pretty pretty intuitive. Um, Graham, take it away. You got a couple questions, All right? right? Let's, let, yeah, let's slide into some of the questions uh, that we received from from the kids. Uh, so the first one, a big one. Uh, Charlie wants to know why did you decide to become an author? So Charlie, um, I, I, I have no short answers for this, um, and so I apologize in advance. Um, I uh, was and, and am still a reader, um, when, and when I was a kid, um, I just lived for books. I do think that there's a part uh, of any reader who, after you read books for a while, you think that you want to write one back. So there's that. But there is also, uh, when I went to college, um, I majored in English because then I could just read books all the time, which is what I wanted to do and still what I want to do. And uh, I had a professor who told me that I had a certain facility with words and that I should consider graduate school. And um, because I was so young, I thought that the professor was trying to tell me I was really super talented. Um, and I thought, <laughs> why should I bother with graduate school? I'll just go off and be a writer. So that was kind of when the idea firmly lodged in my brain. And then um, I spent a good 10 years um, wearing black turtlenecks and um, telling people, I'm a writer. I'm a writer and reading books on writing and dreaming about being a writer and not writing anything. So uh when I turned 30, I started to actually sit down and and write. There you go. There's a long answer, Charlie. When did you actually <laughs> feel like you're a writer? It's a good question. As soon as I started to do it. Hmm. So it was, you didn't have to be published to feel like you could officially call yourself? No. I mean, I spent a lot of time trying to get published. I wanted to get published. But I felt like I, I, I just remember having that feeling of, like, I would get up and do it before I went to work in the morning. And I was just saying this to a friend the other day, that, like, all day long I would go and, and do the work, and it didn't matter because the real work had already been done. And so that mm. must have been when I felt like I was a writer, when I finally started doing it and stopped talking about it, you know? Graham, I don't mean to call off these questions, but I do have a follow-up again. When did you, when did you know that you wanted to write books for kids? Was that something you always wanted to do or did that uh, evolve? No, another really good question. So, um, I, uh, when I started to write, I was working at a book warehouse um, here in Minneapolis, um, was book distributor, and uh, my job was picker, and I went around picking the books off the shelves and filling the orders. I was assigned to the third floor, 
that was all kids books on that third floor. And as a mm. reader, it was just a, 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 you know, a matter of time before I started to read some of those books that I was pulling off the shelf. And I read, uh, the Watsons go to Birmingham 1963 mm. by Christopher Paul Curtis. And I thought, gosh, this is so good. It's so funny. It's so warm. It's so loving. And it talks about something so huge. Um, mm. And then I thought I wanted to try and do something like that. So mm. that's uh, pretty soon after that, I started on Because of Winn-Dixie. Mm. Here's a question from Lily. Okay. Uh, Lily. She wants to know who your favorite authors were when you were growing up. Yeah, you know, it, it's it, it's uh, a really hard question to ask because I was the kind of kid who, to answer, because I was the kind of kid who, like, if it was a book, I loved it, you know. I, I kind of read without discretion. Um, and also, I, I like to say this when I um, talk to kids about becoming a writer, that, like, and back when I was growing up, um, we never, I, I never went to a book signing and met a writer. I never had a writer come into the classroom. I didn't mm. think that human beings wrote books. I don't <laughs> know where I thought they came from, but all of which. Bookstore trolls. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I, um, I just thought, you know, I, I just, I, I, there are books that I loved and that I returned to a lot. Um, uh, William Penn Dubois. I never know how to say his name, the 21 balloons. I remember reading and rereading that. Um, mm. the mouse and the motorcycle, Ralph oh, yeah. S. Mouse, um, Stuart Little. But you know, so it wasn't, I wasn't going as much by, um, you know, who wrote it, but by, uh, what it was. I, I love Paddington the Bear. I, I mm. love all of those original novels. Um, so I, I went by, character and story more than by writer, I guess. Mm. And it seems like all of those that you just mentioned have animals as the main yeah. character. Yeah. And so we got a few questions uh, on that topic. So uh, Lucy and Kate have noticed that you use animals a lot in your books and they want to know what your favorite animal is. Oh, my favorite animal is a dog. Um, yeah, uh, hands down. And, and my dog, Ramona, for Ramona Quimby is here right now, passed out on the floor at my feet, but she could <laughs> awaken at any moment. It's kind of like a sleeping lion. Um, and yeah, but I love all animals and, and thought for a long time when, um, I was, you know, nine, 10 years old that I wanted to be a veterinarian. Um, and boy, I couldn't have done that. So. Did you say what kind of dog Ramona is? She is a, a golden doodle, a, a miniature one. So, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, Nora wants to know if you've ever had a pet pig. <laughs> Nora. No, Nora. You know, um, I, I I have to say that uh, writing about Mercy Watson is one of the um, continuing great delights of my life. Um, but I've never been able to have a pig as a pet. And, and now that um, Ramona is here, I don't think Ramona would allow it. Yeah. Dogs and dogs and pigs famously get along well. So if you had a, let's say you had a neighbor who had a pet pig, would uh-huh. you, would you act more like a Eugenia or a, or a baby? 
Oh, I would be baby totally in that regard. I have to say, I understand Eugenia more than I wish I did. You know, I understand how she likes rules and and how she feels things should be. But, like, totally, if if my neighbors had a pig, I would be, like, over there all the time visiting the pig. Yeah. So you just mentioned a couple of names from the books, and we got a question about about that, actually. Uh, Lily wants to know how you come up with the names you use in your books. like. Kiro Skuro, for instance, was the one that she mentioned in particular. Um, you know, this is the weird thing with me with names and, and writing. Like everything about writing is hard for me. All of it, except for the names. And, mm. and I've learned to always <laughs> carry a notebook with me. Um, because I never know when a name is going to pop into my head. And a lot of times the name will lead to a story. And sometimes the name is something that I carry around for uh, a long time before it. And then, and then when I'm working on a story, I, it's like, Oh, that's where it belongs. Like um, Elf Ear, Nebraska, which shows up in Louisiana's <laughs> way home. I had that in the back of the notebook for a long time. Um, Blundermeesen, which is where, uh, uh, Dr. Misham is, uh, from, uh, in Flora and Ulysses. I carried that name around for a long time. So I don't know where they come from that they just pop into my head. So you just said though that writing, everything about writing is difficult for you except the names. Yeah. So I imagine there's some kids out there that are listening that are saying, well, if it's so hard for her, why does she do it? So <laughs> why, why is that? You know, as a writer who finds, yeah, I like fancy myself a writer sort of too, and I find it very difficult. And half the time I'm like, why am I doing this? Right. And you know, there's that great quote. I can't remember who said it. It might have been Fitzgerald that, um, writing is, you know, the, the person that it's really, really hard for is, are, is the writer. That's how you can tell if you're a writer or not. <laughs> um, and so why do it? Why do it? Um, It's a really good question because um, it, it, particularly when I talk about how I go through my days, because what I have learned, and I don't know if this is true for you, David, as somebody who writes, but I have, I've learned not to give myself any chance to talk myself out of doing it. So um, because I am a coffee drinker, the coffee maker is set for five o'clock and it goes off automatically and I hear it and I come downstairs and I do the writing before I can talk myself out of doing the writing. And mm-hmm. so it, it's that Dorothy Parker quote about, I hate writing. I love having written. And then it goes also back to that feeling that I talked about, like when I would go off to work every day and I felt like the real work had already been done. So mm-hmm. it's hard. It's difficult. And I can't think of anything more magical than holding a book in your hand that um that you've written or, or the most magical thing of all um that somebody that you will never know and probably never meet like reads what you wrote and connects with you and um you mm. become this community i mean because mm. i always feel like the book is never done until it's uh until somebody's mm. read it you know somebody that i don't know and so mm. to be a part of that magical process um it that's worth uh how hard it is and it is hard and and i don't believe anybody that says that it's not hard yeah here is a question from stephanie uh and she would like to know 
if and how your writing process changes when you write books like Mercy Watson with lots of illustrations versus mm-hmm. longer chapter books with few or no illustrations? Yeah, that's a great question, Stephanie. Um, it, it, the process is still the same um, in that I, I work in small, short bursts. So when I started writing, um, I kind of like told myself that the deal was that I couldn't get up until I had written two pages uh, and then I could get up from the desk. And so that's still kind of the way I work. So when I'm doing something shorter that I know is going to have illustrations, I will still only do two pages a day. And then I do multiple drafts um, of it. So it's just a shorter work period. So if I'm writing something about Mercy Watson, um, then I, I get a draft within, you know, the first draft within four or five days of work. And then um, I put it aside and kind of like let it marinate, come back to it later, do a second draft, third draft. And in between, I'll, I'll work on another project, something longer maybe. Um, and that's kind of, yeah. So, but the process is still the same. Do you find it hard to bounce around between projects if you're working on a longer project, like just the headspace kind of concept? No, I don't. Well, I mean, I wouldn't be able to like work on Mercy Watson in the morning and then do work on the novel in the afternoon. I can't do that kind of headspace thing, but like I like being able to, uh, you know, because I always think, okay, I just need to get the first draft done and then I can put it aside. And so I like that break in between Mm. and, uh, and then to turn to something else that maybe is in the third or fourth draft. So it's further along. And so that's kind of, again, how I jolly myself through it, you know? Mm. So we got a question about, about which of your favorite of which of your books that you wrote is your favorite. This is from Anna. Anna. I can never answer that question, Anna, Um, because they really, the books seem like my kids and it's impossible to, pick one over the other. It's I, I love them equally, but differently. I see them all as deeply flawed. Um, not that, you know, I'm saying anything about somebody's kids, but it's just like <laughs> I love them and I cannot, I cannot pick a favorite. You know? Well, see, all, Anna also wants to know, maybe this one's easier to answer. Maybe not. Uh, which of <laughs> your characters that you relate, which of your characters do you relate to the most? Hmm. Um, well, I can say that the closest I've ever come to kind of like putting myself in a book is um, in, in Rainy Nightingale with Rainy, because that's the kind of kid that I was, um, shy and uh, hopeful and terrified and always kind of watching and listening. Um, and then there are other, I, I mean, I relate to all of the characters because I think all the characters have some part of me in them. It's like, you know, who I want to be. Um, who, who I, um, think that I might be able to become and, and who I was. All of that is kind of jammed in there into all those characters. Do you have a book that you, that was a hardest and so you feel the most proud of having finished it? You said you couldn't sure. choose a favorite, but. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's a good way to think of it. So when I wrote Because of Win Dixie, I was working at that book warehouse, you know, and, um, I had a very, very realistic expectation for what would happen to a, a first-time novel uh, for middle-grade fiction. I just, I, I could see clearly how publishing, I mean, it was just like I had 
I thought if I was really lucky, 5,000 copies of because of Winn-Dixie would sell. And um, and then I could that would make me earn out my advance and then I would be able to do another one. So all of which is to say that what happened with because of Winn-Dixie um, was just kind of overwhelmingly wonderful. Um, I mean, at this point, I don't know what the numbers are. I mean, the last time somebody told me it was 11 million copies of that book mm. have been sold. Um, and so what happens when you write a book that people love like that is you feel like you want to write another book like that so that people will keep on loving you. Right. And so um, I, I got stuck as a writer thinking I have to write something else like because of when Dixie and um, mm. then I figured out if I was going to survive, I was going to have to um, go in a totally different direction. And that was tale of Despero. Um mm. And so, and it was so hard and scary to write it because I kept on thinking no one's going to, you know, this is a totally different kind of book. Nobody's going to want to read it. And also it was so, uh, complicated for me to write. It had, you know, I had to, I had a gigantic timeline uh, taped over my desk so I could keep track of and And it was just really, really hard and, um, and kind of like throwing myself into the abyss in a way, because I just didn't know if it was going to work out or if I was going to end. But um, yeah, so that one, that, that was the hardest one to write. Well, that's an amazing book. So. Oh, well, you're kind. You're kind. Uh, we have a couple of questions about Despero. The first one is, what inspired you to write a modern fairy tale? That is the questioner's words. Yeah. So the 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 phrase um, "unlikely hero" was put into my head by my best friend's son, who was eight years old at the time. And when Dixie had uh, just been published, and he uh, his name is Luke, he had never been very impressed with me. And then, but he was a huge reader. And all of a sudden, here I was with um, a book with my name on it. And so he he took me aside and told me that he had an idea for a book, which was the story of an unlikely hero with exceptionally large ears. And Luke didn't say it's a mouse, but to me, that seemed like an obvious leap as an unlikely hero. And um, and I was just so taken with the phrase and so when I had this kind of I have to go in a different direction I had carried those words of loops around for a while and I thought okay this is what I'm gonna do I'm gonna I'm gonna tell a fairy tale I'm gonna tell a fantasy and um and I purposely um there were things in there that were uh what you call anachronisms um uh like uh the king playing a song from uh 1950s, the deep purple falls over sleepy garden walls. And I mean, so it, it, that goes to the whole modern fairy tale kind of question, right? So I, I realized that I was working on a fairy tale, but I deliberately let those other things come in too. So. Mm. And that question was from uh, Dara. I want to make sure to give her credit. Oh, Dara. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, also, Lucy wants to know, since soup is so important in the tale of Despero, what your favorite soup is? Um, I, I'm a fan of um, something with a lot of noodles in it, given my Italian background. So if you put a lot of noodles in it, I love it. And also the other thing is if you make it for me, because, <laughs> again, <laughs> I'm not cooking it. 
I, I, I want to spicy, right? Yeah, and spicy, yes. Yeah, yeah. We got a couple questions about some of your other books as well. I think we should just kind of go through these ones a little quickly because then Graham has a um Oh yeah. He's got a he's got a little uh, quiz for you. A little, uh, I love a quiz. A little quiz. Uh not a long one, just just you know four questions, but before we get to that, Brock and Sarah want to know if or what if any particular life experience inspired the writing of The Miraculous Journey of Edward Tulane. And they say it's a family favorite and has really had an impact on them. Oh, nice. Uh, that book started with, uh, the literal gift of a rabbit doll. Um, and a friend gave the rabbit to me for Christmas. Um, he's, um, dressed in this very elegant outfit. He's kind of, he's made of melamine, which doesn't sound as good as China. And, uh, when I, she gave him to me, she said his name was Edward. And, um, he's kind of a creepy looking rabbit. And I like when I brought him home, I put him on the couch in the living room and I thought, you know, I I feel like I might have nightmares with this thing in the house. And then I had a dream where the rabbit was underwater with um, no clothing on a naked rabbit dream, mainstay of all writers everywhere. (laughs) And and I thought, what can I, it's like, it it felt to be like it was definitely a book, but it was a picture book. And so I sat down with that image in mind and um and then something happened that doesn't happen very often which is it just kind of told itself it was just like i realized as it was happening that it was a gift i remember walking around the lake here thinking thank you thank you thank you um and and also having the ridiculous thought okay now i figured out how to write a novel but i hadn't it was just that that one like came Mm. um easier than any other book and was really a gift Mm. These are man, we just keep listing all these titles. These are some good books. <laughs> <laughs> you say that to all your guests, yeah. You should write a bad one sometime just so we can, you know, just to balance it out. There are a lot of them here. They're all <laughs> they're all in the closet. Yeah. Um, well, Jackie says that she reads the miraculous journey of Edward Tulane um, to her first graders every year. On the last couple of pages, the students are all cheering, and she is choking up. Every uh, year, seven years in a row. Uh, so that's that's not a question. I just thought you might like to hear that. No, and I but I would like to thank her for um, that the miraculous gifts that she gives to those kids, not just of reading that book, but of reading um, books out loud to the it's second grade, right? Uh, first I think it was, yep, first grade. Right, yeah, it's like that is. I, I'm so grateful to teachers who do that. I, I just always think about myself in second grade um, with Mrs. Boyette reading Island of the Blue Dolphins. And, you know, and I grew up in a house filled with books. My mother read to me. She took me to the library. She bought me books. And I was living for Mrs. Boyette reading every day after lunch. So I think if it mattered that much to me, boy, it's got to matter to other kids, too. So mm. thank you for reading out loud. Okay. Is it time for the really tough question? Yep, I think it's time for the quiz. Yeah. Okay. so. Kate, yes, we have devised a quiz. Mm -hmm. Very serious. You should be feeling very anxious. Um, (laughs) Well, that's like it's a redundancy to say that I'm anxious. (laughs) I'm just in a permanent state of anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. I would just like to reiterate the seriousness of this quiz. Okay. (laughs) So in honor of of the Beatrice Prophecy, your new book coming out, we developed a kind of out already, but yeah. Oh yeah, sorry, that came out. Uh, was it September? September. 
Um, we've developed a Beatrice-themed quiz. Now, we are not going to quiz you on your own book, but we've gathered some kind of notable Beatrices that we have some questions about. Oh, wow. This is <laughs> going to be hard. Okay. It, no, it's very serious. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Question number one. Beatrice in Dante's Divine Comedy. I knew that would be the first one, yeah. <laughs> guides the pilgrim along his journey. Uh-huh. And acts as a link between the physical and the divine. Mm. Which of these do you think best represents a link between the physical and divine? A hammock with a good book and a nice breeze. Mm. Flipping your pillow over to the cool side on a hot night. Or hearing your mom say, let's say when you're a middle schooler, honey, it snowed last night. School is canceled. Go back to bed. Oh, there's no contest. It's A. Yeah. It's the book in the hammock? The book in the hammock and the breeze. Yeah. Yeah. It's the best. It yeah. really is the best. Okay. You got that one. You got that. Yeah. Congratulations. You know, you're one for one. <laughs> the thing that I like to do, if I'm ever like super comfortable in reading, well, I don't like to do this, but I'm often reading and then I drop the book on myself because I've fallen asleep. If I'm oh, in yeah, some kind I've of hammock situation. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Question number two. In Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing, the sharp-witted and feisty Beatrice delivers some of the most memorable lines in the play. Which of these is the sickest burn? As the kids the, say. As the kids. Well, they probably don't even say it anymore. That's true. That's true. Some kids said once. <laughs> <laughs> I had rather hear my dog bark at a crow than a man swear he loves me. Okay, this one, the messenger comes up. I can see he's not in your good books, he says. No, and if he were, I would burn my library. <laughs> Number three, scratching could not make it worse as for such a face as was yours. I'm going with number one. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. I, I just just because I wish that I had written it. <laughs> Congratulations, you're two for two. <laughs> I think we all wish we had written Shakespeare. You're right. I was going to say not that that's a novel. Ha uh-huh. ha. Yeah. Wish. Yeah. 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 All right, Princess. Talk about a guy who makes it look easy. <laughs> Question number three. Uh huh. Princess Beatrice is the current princess of York. She uh-huh. lives in a palace. Uh huh. And uh-huh. is tenth in line of succession for the British throne. Mm. Here's the question. Okay. Is that life of royalty and luxury worth it if you still have to wear those silly hats in public? <laughs> you want me to answer? Yeah. It's a, yeah. Absolutely not. You know what I It's like it's a no-brainer. Of course it isn't. You know? No. <laughs> Absolutely. You want go back to go back to the first question. You want a hammock and a book. Yeah, that's yeah. what you want in this world. Yeah, or I do. Yeah. Three for three. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, All right. So but, 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 but this is a tough one. The last one, I uh, I cheated a little bit, but not really. I went back to the Latin. So Beatrice comes from Beatrix. So now we're going to talk about Beatrix Potter. Hmm. Okay, Beatrix Potter, the author and illustrator of children's classics beloved the world over. Okay, while Peter Rabbit, Benjamin Bunny, Jemima Puddle Duck, and her other wonderful characters lived a, 
it lived a vibrantly colorful life. According to my photographic research, Beatrix herself was black and white. What accounts for this curious contrast? Go. <laughs> I don't, you know, I have to tell you, I have held in my hands the original, I think it was Peter Rabbit, um, illustrations, um, with, that have no light color in them at all, not even his little, uh, his little jacket. So I, I don't know who added the coloration later on. I'm not, um, mm. learned enough to, to answer that, but I know that it was just, uh, pen and ink, uh, was what she was, uh, yeah. So, but maybe, maybe the next time I come back, we can talk about that. That would be wonderful. All right. Excellent job. Okay. I'm going to submit this. I'm going to submit this to the, uh, the higher ups, uh, for assessments and. Oh, good. And that then, report and then card out. Give me the results in triplicate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's probably going to take eight to 12 weeks. <laughs> All right. Well, we're at the time of the episode where it is time for our word of the week. And Graham, it's season three which means it's time for some changes because, listen, I appreciate, you know, we're good friends and I, I don't want to hurt your feelings. I appreciate all of your efforts to 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 get that, that Word of the Week printer to work last season. But just between you and me and Kate and everybody who's listening, I, I don't think we can continue with the Word of the Week printer. It was it's, just too much trouble. It's been it's, a struggle. It's been Honestly, a struggle. it's probably your greatest flaw. Is your inability to use the word of the week printer? And I so think let's try ever, something new. Well, I think ever since we gave it uh, first off legs, but then yeah, that, uh, that was maybe a mistake. Consciousness. Yeah, I think yeah. it's only fair that we kind of release it into the wild. That's true. We and, should set it free. Know, set it free. Okay. There's it's a not metaphor. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a metaphor, Kate. It's not a metaphor. Um, <laughs> so, so what I did during between the, the break, we, the reason we needed a break between seasons two and three is I needed some time to compile the official word of the week, Withy Windle word of the week dictionary. Oh, the so we're not, so we don't have to be. O-W-D. <laughs> so we don't have to be reliant on this printer anymore. No, no. So, um, I'm going to go get the dictionary and I'm going to go, you know, we're going to, we're going to, Open it at random and we're going to, we're going to choose this week's word of the week through the word of the week dictionary. So I'll be right back. Graham, we have a problem. Oh no, what is it? The bookstore troll has struck again. The dictionary is gone and in its place is a note. You better read this note. Oh, you want to? Okay. The note says, I have your dictionary. Oh, so now, okay. So we have to, we're going we to go into, He's in his cave. He's, we got to go into the lair. Wait, we got to go into the lair. We have to decide but, which one of but, us. No, that. no, 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 no. That's the detail on the note. Okay. Fine print, really small. Send Graham. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. All right. So go. Right. I guess go, I'll be back. Go find out. Okay. Okay. All right. I've got the word. He gave me the word, but he did not give me the dictionary back. He says each week he will give us one word in exchange for something. 
basically he's holding the dictionary ransom. So he's being magnanimous here in episode 3.1? I, I suppose. But in the so future, here, he's going to be less magnanimous? Okay. All so right. here's the word. We'll just deal with the next weeks as they come. Now, do you have a word? Yeah, I do. I do have the word. I thought you were. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Oh, okay. This is an interesting one. Okay. So, okay. Here's our word of the week. Are you ready to ready to write it down? Everybody who's listening, get ready to write it down. It's Nainsook. N a i n s o o k. Nainsook. What? Yeah, Nainsook. Spell that again. N a i n s o o k. And we're back, Graham. As is tradition, you're up first. Nainsook. What does it mean? Nainsook is the name of both a fruit and a dish made from the fruit. Now, this dish is a specific soup that comes from the Oceanian Islands, and it's made from the Nainsook fruit, which is vibrant purple color. But they only offer you this soup if you're able to get one of the fruits from the Nainsook tree. (laughs) Spoiler alert, it's difficult. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> okay all right and 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 we'd have to put put some some crushed red pepper and some noodles to get kate to eat it that's right uh, um well i think you're wrong i think the nainsook is that wheel that is on the spinning loom the last used when spinning gold and the rumple stilts can tell mm. so it's that it's the specific thing the wheel that's on the loom that's really nice so, um, I, I don't believe either one of you. I think I'm right. <laughs> um, and you know how um, when somebody uh, has given up on you or cast you out, you've been forsook, forsaken, mm. you know. Um, so namesook is when you give up your family name and set out in search of your own name, namesook. I don't know if that's the real definition, but it definitely should be. Should we just end? We, I guess it'd be confusing if we just appropriate that definition into the into the right. World. Okay. I can't wait to hear what it means. Okay, so Nainsook is, and I'm going to uncover this now. <laughs> this is classic. Nainsook is a fine cotton fabric. Wow, that's it. Yeah, so it's that's a kind it? of fine cotton. Fabric. Nobody's traveling anywhere and becoming them real their real selves. No one's eating soup, and no one's. Spinning anything. I mean, it, yours is the closest, David, because guess, it has to do so, yeah. with, with, with cloth, of, and, and, you know, at some point. Yeah. All right. So one one word that I had um, found here, I looked up the definition. The word was, I'm, this is just a bonus word. It's called meldrop. And it's, I didn't choose it because the definition is a drop of mucus at the nose, whether produced by cold or otherwise. Wow. How do you spell that? Meldrop. M-E-L-D-R-O-P. Meldrop. It would be a great name for a pharmacy. <laughs> That's true. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Okay. Well, Kate, okay. we have loved chatting with you. Thank you so much for coming on. Last question here is, do you have any advice for the kids who are listening who want to be writers or illustrators? I do. I, I have advice for the kids who are listening who want to be uh, writers or illustrators and the adults who are listening who want to be writers or illustrators. <laughs> it's all the same, no, it, it, whether you're 8 or 68. Um, it's read as much as you can. Uh, find a way to do the work of making something every day if you can. Make a deal with yourself about doing that work. Carry a notebook with you. 
uh, and eavesdrop as much as you can. Um, the notebook to me is always a reminder that it, it's my job in the world to pay attention to everything and to keep everything open, my eyes and my ears and my brain and my heart. Um, and then um, don't let anybody talk you into becoming a lawyer. Because if you have a, a verbal facility, that's what they usually um, yeah. say. Hey, you could be a lawyer. Yeah. yeah. You know the author Wendell Berry? Any chance? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Did you read the great uh, profile of him in the New Yorker? I did, yeah. So, yeah. so I've gotten to know him a little bit. Well, Graham and I both have. And he told me once that his dad and his brother were lawyers. And everybody thought he should be a lawyer because he had a facility with words. But then he said he gets too nervous when he has to stand up. So he likes just writing it because he can revise it. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, well, you tell Wendell Berry that I said, hey, and that I'm a fan. Yeah. Well, I don't know if I know him. I don't, we've gotten to know him. I didn't say that I'm like, I might like, uh, you no, can write him a letter. I said, hey. Okay. All right. I will. I will. <laughs> well, speaking of other writers, before we go, we like to ask our guests to challenge one other writer to come on this podcast to endure the slings and arrows that is the Witty Wendell podcast. Who would you like to, to challenge to come on? M.T. Anderson. M.T. Anderson. Yeah. Do you know Tobin? Um, he's written uh, Feed and uh, oh, yeah. Landscape of the Mills. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You, you'll That's, love having It's a great one. Yeah. Well, M.T. Anderson, consider yourself challenged. Katie Camillo, thank you for coming on, and thank you for bearing the slings and arrows yourself here on Witty Wendell. Oh, it was so much fun. Thank you. Goodbye, bookstore troll. Okay, well, that was our conversation with Kate DiCamillo. That was um, a 13 out of 1 score on on that conversation. It was a great time. Excellent. And that brings us to riddle time. Ooh. But, Graham. Yes. You, you tend to put our authors through just a terrible experience of having to answer questions in a quiz. Uh, I, I, nobody else has ever... Um, Categorized. It is terrible. It is terrible. I think I've heard amazing. Wow. Wow <laughs> comes up a lot. Like those, yeah. those questions I've yeah. heard. Challenging, um, but in a good way. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't appreciate okay, that. Okay. You know what? You put them through a challenging, but in a good way experience of having to, to have to answer questions in a quiz. But you know what? Mm-hmm. You have expressed your expertise in penny farthings on this episode. Yeah. And that, I, I, I'd say I'm the, and, Foremost expert in North America. Okay. You are claiming to be the foremost expert in North America on the penny farthing. Yeah, because I own one. Well, I'm now going Apparently. to put you through a penny farthing quiz before we get to our riddle. So we're, okay. we're going to find out just how smart you are about penny farthings. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Okay. Mm-hmm. Are you ready? Maybe not the foremost expert, but... Um, uh, you are an I'm, expert I'm, on a scale of expertise. I'm an... I'm, uh, somewhat knowledgeable about these things. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> okay. 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 The name Penny Farthing uh-huh. comes from. Oh, this is easy. Go ahead. Like I said earlier, the wheels are made out of brass. Okay. What are pennies made out of? Probably coppers. Or, uh, <laughs> yeah. br- I mean, brass. They're made out of brass, too. They're made out of metal, at least. So, um,. The, 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 so that when people see them driving, do you drive? I know this. You ride it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, yes, they see them yeah. riding down uh-huh. the street. Uh-huh. They, they think, think those large wheels look like uh, giant pennies. Oh. That's why they're called the penny farthing. So it comes from the British name 
penny mm-hmm. and farthing. Those are two different coins. The yeah. penny and the farthing. Yeah, coins. I said coins. One of which is much larger than the latter. I said coins. Yeah, you did. You I said did coins. say coins. Right, because right, it's right there in the name. It's like I a lazy word. I said it, and you heard it. I did. Okay. I now, say that's one for one. Eugene Meyer. Oh, Oh, yeah. Eugene Meyer was the inventor of the high-wheeler bicycle design in 1869, and he fashioned the wire-spoke tension wheel. Yeah, God bless him. I don't don't even know that. I know you're an expert on the wire-spoke tension wheel. Now, I've written many a paper. Out of these options, (laughs) Eugene Meyer was from which country? Oh. Out of these options. Oh, I don't even need them, but go ahead. Narnia. Uh Uh-huh. North Carolina. The country of North Carolina? I said what I said. Before it was a state. It was Narnia. A I remember now. North Carolina. France. What? You need more? Uh, keep going. <laughs> oh, I'm just waiting for you Spain. to say the right one. Uh, keep going. Germany. The Czech Republic. Warning, this episode contains profanity, and frankly, all things considered, you're lucky it contains anything else. This week's episode of The Scathing Atheist is brought to you by Adam and Eve, Stamps.com, and by Weed. Weed, because it fucks up the sound quality when I bite through the microphone with rage. And now, The Scathing Atheist. This is Mike Wiseman from The Bible Says What the Podcast. And not only does every pastor I talk to worship a documented child killer, but we did in fact evolve from filthy monkey men and women. It was a great day. Okay. That was my It's Thursday. Go ahead. <laughs> it's November 5th. <laughs> and it's never been more awkward that we record this show on a Wednesday afternoon. Just let me refresh one more time. I'm refreshing. No, I'm refreshing. Heath, we, Heath, we have I'm to podcast. Refresh. I'm, I'm no illusions. <laughs> I'm Eli Bond. I'm refreshed. Heath Enright. <laughs> and from Jared Kushner's New Jersey, Cincinnati Red State and Waycross Swing State. This is the right. Scathing Atheist. On this week's episode, we'll send Mama Bear Apologetics off with a super funny, super good song. Huh? Mm-hmm. Refreshing. Fuck! And I'll find out that quitting smoking has a final exam. <laughs> but first, the diatribe. All right, so normally I, I try to record my diatribe before dinner on Wednesday so I can get the show out early for patrons and get to be done working before midnight. But this week I didn't even start writing the damn thing until almost midnight. I just I kept hitting refresh, staring at that election map, waiting for some clarity, eager to properly calibrate my anger for this one. Now, I didn't exactly get clarity. Hopefully you have some by the time you hear this, right? Hopefully things continue the way they're looking and Biden takes it in the squeaker. And if that's the case, we only need to turn our anger up to 10.99879. Because, you know, as idiotic as this outcome is, at least it doesn't appear to be the stupidest thing imaginable, which, let's face it, is what we've come to expect from this dumbass fucking country. You know, all that being said, I'd say this is dumber than 2016. 
right? Like, like even assuming a Biden victory, knowing everything we know now about Donald Trump after four years of corruption, lies, incompetence, fraud, negligence, vituperations, racism, misogyny, xenophobia, self-dealing, nepotism, divisiveness, and binding all that shit together like the mortar, the relentless, frothing-at-the-mouth stupidity. After all that, the best we as a nation can muster is a tepid, nah, you probably not, I guess. That's it? I was I was so fucking wrong. I, I thought because I had such a low opinion of the American populace, I couldn't possibly be overestimating them. I, I thought so little of us that it didn't even seem mathematically possible for us to be worse than I gave us credit for. But we are. For there to be even the remotest chance of America rescuing some shred of its international dignity, we needed a goddamn landslide. We needed a mandate of historic proportions. We needed to stand up and say enough in a single fucking voice. And I genuinely thought that's what we'd do. I genuinely believed that we would have never made this mistake in 2016 if we really knew what we were getting into. And I was wrong. Millions of us, tens of millions of us, are just willing to march blindly into some theocratic idiocracy, even as the bodies drop by the thousands around us. And for what? What do they get out of it? You know, it's, it's literally just that they get to win. It's spite. There's no agenda. Trump hasn't accomplished anything. He hasn't even promised to accomplish anything this time around. He literally ran with no platform other than to agree with himself. And that was enough for damn near half of American voters. And I honestly don't know what to do with that. It seems to undercut the whole foundation of humanism to me. Is it naive to hope that these fucking idiots will ever be worth our trouble? Should should we just look after ourselves, gather in a tight circle, and point our guns outward in all directions? I mean, as stupid as that fucking sounds, it's getting really hard to argue that there's anything more sensible to do. We're surrounded by idiots that would send you to the gas chamber just to avoid losing a fucking Twitter fight. In 2016, I was wondering if we could be safe. In 2020, I'm left wondering whether we should be. And look, I don't want to promote hate. I don't want to say we should hate the other side, but we should kind of hate the other side. We're talking about people who have no particular qualms about kidnapping children as a deterrent to their parents. And if we insist on continuing to imbue people like that with some kind of basic humanity, we risk finding ourselves forever chained to this station. This position where we stand there gawking at the electoral map going, how the fuck can any of this even be close? To ascribe some kind of moral foundation to the average American person is to reject all the observable evidence at this point. I'm not saying that the people on the other side are evil. I'm just saying that their actions are functionally indistinguishable from evil. I mean, keep telling yourself that that asshole with the Trump sign in his yard is the kind of person that would run into a burning building to save a neighbor. He wouldn't put on a fucking mask to save a neighbor. And whether that's because he's evil, stupid, or undereducated and misled doesn't matter much when you're that neighbor. Our nation is rotten all the way through. 
It is deeply, fundamentally, foundationally broken. And our tendency to see the good in the people around us, our our combination of empathy and cultural blindness, leaves us in a terrible position if we want to fix it. We refuse to recognize the problem because to truly grasp how evil and shitty America is, you have to admit how evil and shitty the people you care about are. Your friends and your family. You have to admit that Uncle Frank isn't just an asshole. He's evil. Your Aunt Kathy isn't just stupid. She's dangerous. And even after you just watched them spend four years pledging undying allegiance to someone as unapologetically malicious as Donald Trump, you still bristle when I apply terms like that to them. Even now, as you watch him leap to his defense and threaten to take up arms against democracy, you can't help but think, evil, Noah, really, evil, yes, really. We can't afford that kind of naivety anymore. This is a life and death struggle and the deaths are already in the six-figure range. We need to stare the ugliness of America right in the fucking face without pretending that America is some immutable system that happens in Washington, D.C. and state capitol buildings. It's us. We need to see how evil and terrible this nation is, even if we can only see some of its blemishes when we look in a fucking mirror. Because the story about the emperor's new clothes takes on a much darker tone when it's 20 degrees below zero. And it has never been colder than it is right now. They're talking about your Jesus. interrupt this broadcast bring you a special news bulletin. Joining me for headlines tonight are the Steve Kornacki and John King to my like whoever Vanna White's the election map over on Fox News. He then writing Eli Bosnick. Fellas, are you ready to look at the numbers? Refreshing again. I'm refreshing. Keith, Heath, that is not what he meant. Uh, you know it's it. Same. Okay, it's not, but like, is there anything, is there an update on Pennsylvania? No, no, that you're... no, no nothing since the end of the diatribe. No. Oh, all right. Well, while I double check that, we're going to pause for a quick word from our first sponsor this week, Adam and Eve. Hi, I'm Eli Bosnick. And I'm Ethan Wright. Are you stressed out? Are you feeling a little high-strung? Who put this chair by my desk? Chair's always been at your desk, buddy. Well, that's stupid. That's stupid. Oh, okay. Right. Well, uh, we'd like to remind you that there's no better way to take the edge off than with one of the many fine products available at adamandeve.com. This window is ridiculous. Yeah, it it is. Oh, there it is. Yep. And right now, you can get almost any one item for 50% off when you use offer code SCATHING. That's SCATHING at checkout. Because we could all use a little self-care right now. And there's no better care than down there. So one more time, go to adamandeve.com and use that offer code SCATHING for 50% off almost any one item. I'm going to the kitchen. I hate it in here. Oh, no, Binky's in there. That's where Binky is. Hey, Binky, how you doing, little buddy? Oh, don't awe at me, you bald mick! Okay. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> and now, back to the headlines. In our lead story tonight, we, <laughs> we had an election yesterday, and there's going to be a winner declared. I love it I can say a sentence that ends in a period right now, but I can't, or maybe I can't. I don't know. Well, uh, let's talk about some stuff. As everybody knows, and as everybody already knew going into Election Day, the giant volume of mail-in ballots are going to take a while to count. So we don't have a definitive winner as of Wednesday afternoon. But 
regardless of the winner, here's a depressing sentence that ends in a period. We do have a president right now, and it's Donald Trump. <sighs> At least until he's removed from office and jailed forever for committing treason-level election fraud by declaring the elusive they as guilty of election fraud and declaring himself the winner at 2 a.m. Yep. To be clear, they is counting. Yep. They yeah. is the concept of counting votes. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. It, it was so weird watching his Twitter timeline today because he kept yelling that they should stop doing counting, but... He didn't stop doing that after Biden got the lead in Michigan. So like, the Biden campaign at a certain point is like, I, oh, okay. You're stupid. Uh, Mr. Trump, Mr. Biden already knocked over all the milk cans and took the bear. It, it doesn't matter if you get one more throw. The cans are, okay. So here's a few of the exact words from the president of the United States, just in case you somehow Magically made yourself go to sleep in the last 48 hours, <laughs> and you missed his attempt at a Twitter coup, and then an oratorial coup. Or the Twitter coup didn't really work, yeah. <laughs> no. He started with a tweet that said, quote, we are up big, but they are trying to steal the election. We will never let them do it. Votes cannot be cast after the polls are closed. <laughs> End quote. Yeah, and well, and to be clear, when he tweeted that, he was down in both the reported popular vote and the electoral college <laughs> exactly. vote that had been declared. So, just for the record, you actually can't see that tweet right now because nope. Twitter realized they probably shouldn't display treason on their website. Right. And in response, the Trump campaign posted the statement on Facebook, too. And apparently, Mark Zuckerberg's not the liberal shill that Jack Dorsey nope. is. So Facebook left up the post, but they did put a notice next to it that says, this is dangerous lying, but we're still going to leave it there. And considering Facebook's role in the 2016 election, it seems like Zuckerberg should just have to follow around Trump for the rest of his life, holding up a poster board that says dangerous lie whenever Trump talks in real life. Mm -hmm. I feel like that should be a rule. Yeah, but then he lets Russia pay 500 guys to hold up signs that say Zuckerberg is lying. We're right back where we started. You know, it gets. <laughs> so following that tweet, Joe Biden gave a quick speech from outside his campaign headquarters in Delaware about his optimism regarding the remaining vote count. And then about an hour later, Trump walked out on stage at the White House, read off a bunch of numbers that. He clearly didn't understand. No, no. <laughs> the total number of percents is tricky for him. And then he said, frankly, we did win this election. He also added, we'll be going to the U.S. Supreme Court. We want all voting to stop. <laughs> like you say when you win an election. Yeah. Cut to Mark Zuckerberg standing there going like, OK, wait, do I hold up the sign for we want all voting to stop? I don't. <laughs> he does, though. So, in response to Trump calling for all the voting to end, I think the vast majority of Americans responded, uh, okay, we'll stop, we'll stop. <laughs> that being said, I've been voting hard for all of Wednesday so many times, and I'm not going to stop until I am forced by a court ruling. <laughs> okay. But here's the real question. Now can I poop in Nate Silver's shoes? No, you still cannot <laughs> poop in Nate Silver's shoes. Hate being the new guy. I'll do it. <laughs> and in School of Hard Cocks news, 
former president of Liberty University would like to put the year 2020 behind him. Would the he? year in which <laughs> yes. <it's, huh. laughs> the year in which he negligently kept his school open in spite of COVID, took a picture of himself with his pants undone with a woman who wasn't his wife and put it on Instagram, officially revealed to the world that his wife was fucking the pool boy while he watched, and then got so drunk he fell down the stairs and his wife had to call an ambulance for him. Jerry Falwell Jr. wants you to forget all of that happened this year, so he's suing Liberty University for making him look bad. <laughs> yes. Okay. Right. But in fairness to Falwell, they should not have hired him. I think he's right. Like, <laughs> if they don't hire him, he's just like some dude who enjoys cuck stuff. <laughs> who doesn't know how to stay in his drinking lane and go downstairs on his ass one step at a time, like the liquid cat. That, that's tons of people who never make the news. <laughs> that's a, it's a third right, of this but, podcast. <laughs> all right, but honestly, stairs. though, um, if I was given the option of wiping 2020 from my memory altogether, the only thing that would give me pause is the Jerry stuff and that bit where Ben Shapiro's wife told him a wet vagina was a disease. <laughs> that's right? true. Don't take that's this true. from me, Jerry. That's our yearbook. <laughs> so, according to PR Newswire, quote, in his complaint filed in the Commonwealth of Virginia Circuit Court for the city of Lynchburg, Mr. Falwell claims that Liberty University needlessly injured and damaged his reputation through a series of statements published in print and spoken in large public forums and streamed online following his forced resignation from the university. Yeah, I'm starting to think that guy who sued a reporter for trespassing when they asked questions on his campus doesn't know how the law works. <laughs> <laughs> and quick reminder here at the end, Falwell received a $10 million severance yeah. from Liberty University. So I want to say, just for the record right now, I want to clear the air that if Noah and Heath ever find the red box and give me $10 million when they fire me for it, I can promise here and now I will not sue them. What? What's the red box? You, you know what? Withdrawn. I don't Two even, votes. Let's Two, just move on. Three votes. And in Karen Height 451 News, <laughs> Christian activist group One Million Moms had another roundtable meeting at Karen's house last week. And as usual, they scoured their exhaustive archive containing all the advertisements for every consumer product from the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries. And they selected their finalists for which persecution to whine about. Last time around, it was an ad for Frank's Red Hot from January of 2019 that implied a naughty word. So they listened to a few body radio ads for morphine tonic and phosphate soda. <laughs> but they finally landed on a new TV commercial for Uber Eats. The ad appears to be aimed at selling food delivery. That's what it sounds like, right? You hear Uber Eats, that's what they would advertise for. But it also secretly changes the sexuality of children by showing them Jonathan Van Ness from Queer Eye wearing a gymnastics leotard. Oh, oh I love that the Christian outrage machine is running out of shit, right? We've yeah. gone from Teen Vogue wants to teach your children anal sex to a gay person existed on my television. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right, so I'm sorry, not to backtrack here, but Karen Height 451 is so much more memorable of a name, <laughs> and it's so much closer to the real number. You guys should really consider that. Think about it. Come on, <laughs> ladies. So, along with Van Ness, the ad also featured five-time Olympic gold medalist Simone Biles, who did some gymnastics and named some food that would get delivered. That was the ad. Of course, 
this turned a bunch of kids into cisgender women of color. Yeah. And then <laughs> Van Ness would do the same thing, thus making kids into non-binary white people. And that second part was a big problem for the maternal horde. Also, the of color thing, if I had to guess. And <laughs> staying within their factor of error, they tweeted about it to their 4,800 followers with a link to their strongly worded op-ed. According to the moms, quote, Casting a cross-dresser in its ads screams liberal agenda and turns off potential Uber Eats customers. For anyone curious or struggling with sexual identity, watching someone uh, prance around in the opposite sex's clothing is not the answer. Yeah. Everyone knows the answer is electroshock therapy. Just ask the vice president. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. So, so we're really going with prance around in our press release, are we? Prance? Yep. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. So first of all, if I'm struggling with my sexual identity... Watching Jonathan Van Ness and his majestic beard, wearing Simone Biles' leotard, showing off his lithe, graceful body <laughs> doing gymnastics, and naming delicious foods is exactly <laughs> what I would want. Just so many great ideas. I want that if I'm not struggling with my sexual identity. Right? We, yeah. we, we all just want that, <laughs> Why right? would you not want that? But more importantly... I'm not switching over to DoorDash like a fucking communist and losing my rewards points for Uber Eats. That's crazy. Either way, one million moms and their Twitter community of 4,800 people is much smaller than our Puzzle in a Thunderstorm team, also known as one trillion podcasters. <laughs> and also much, much smaller than one bazillion people who hate bigot moms. Yeah. So I sure hope... One million moms in their Twitter group doesn't get hijacked like the Proud Boys hashtag. I would hate that would to be see a that. Damn shame if Terrible. that were to happen. Yeah. And in which guy did you vote for news? You know, it might take us years to pick apart the results of this week's election. Which way the undecided voters went and how COVID affected voting are all long term questions with no easy answers. Luckily for us, we don't have to wait because the Christian Broadcasting Network already has a theory. Donald Trump was attacked by a bunch of witches. Of course. Yeah, a, a year ago. They, they attacked him a year ago. Then he got impeached. Then, like, 250,000 Americans died while he pretended COVID was a hoax and mm -hmm. counting. Uh, then the spell kicked in and affected his vote this year. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, for those of you who missed it, all of America's witches and 75% of its undercuts used their <laughs> magic powers to bind Donald Trump this past Halloween, which is fucking stupid. Uh, last Halloween of yeah. 2019 yep. <laughs> with a one-year fuse on the okay. spell. Uh, yeah. So, so Heath, as a former Wiccan, I assure you that witch magic is dictated by the divine wheel of... You'll have probably forgot we did this by then, and that wheel cannot be rushed. <laughs> well, regardless, if witches actually had magic powers, then eight out of ten of their Facebook posts wouldn't be about how capitalism is the reason they got fired from their part-time job at a yoga studio. But the folks over at Christian Broadcasting Network are stupid and dangerous. Yeah. So they put an article on their website asking their users to use their prayer magic to stop the witch magic. <laughs> but and now we need the witches to stop the prayer. <laughs> Maybe I'm, like our best bet would just be to coax all the religions into some kind of thought magic Ouroboros until they all starve to death or something. <laughs> yes, good idea. And I got to say, this whole article is absolutely worth reading because there's so many terrifying ins and outs. So one little quote. 
Trinity College in Connecticut tracked witchcraft's prevalence for some 18 years. <laughs> Trinity College, the alma mater of Tucker Carlson. Oh, really? Lovely. <laughs> He's doing great things for that endowment from witchcraft <laughs> research. <laughs> it continues, researchers found that in 1990, there were an estimated 8,000 Wiccans in the U.S. That number grew to 340,000 in 2008. Wait, so but by researchers they mean that guy we met who knows how to do the Google because <laughs> those are the goddamn census numbers. <laughs> Research. You can just look those up. Okay. But my favorite part of this article is that it ends with an interview with a Roman Catholic priest and the designated exorcist of the Archdiocese of in- Indianapolis, oh, Father Jesus. Vincent Lampert, who says, "Quote." Some of them may be doing it thinking, it's just fun, but they are gambling with evil. And just because their motive is one way doesn't mean they're not opening up an entry point for evil in their own life. I think evil (laughs) will present itself as something good, maybe initially to attract people's attention, to draw people in. But then, ultimately, people are going to discover it's all about fracturing lives. End quote. (laughs) Okay, well, so with that reminder that... Whatever we win and whatever we lose, at least we're not on the side of the argument that's duty bound to be afraid of its own goddamn imagination. We'll take a quick break for a word from this week's second sponsor, Stamps.com. <coughs> no, 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 no. It needs to be higher pitched. <coughs> yeah, okay. Much better. Hey, hey, Heath, did you borrow my... Why is Eli dressed in blackface again? No, no, don't make me put a dollar in the jar. I'm a chimney sweep. I'm a chimney sweep. What? a chimney sweep. Why are you a chimney sweep? Okay, so you know how this holiday season, more people are going to be mailing stuff than ever before? Uh, I imagine so, yeah. Mm -hmm. So what better way to beat the lines at the post office than by dressing as a Dickensian orphan? Okay, but why not just try stamps.com? What's (coughs) stamps? Okay, okay. No, you you do it. You can do it. What's stamps.com? Heath, he's not really a chimney sweep. Damn it, I knew you weren't really a chimney sweep. Stamps.com brings the services of the U.S. Postal Service and UPS right to your computer. Stamps.com is a must-have for any business, whether you're a small office sending out invoices, an online seller fulfilling orders during this record-setting holiday season, or even a giant warehouse sending thousands of packages a day. Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Wow, that sounds great. Plus, with Stamps.com, you get $0.05 off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail and up to 62% off UPS shipping rates. Wait, I can ship through UPS using Stamps.com? Yeah, you sure can. Don't spend a minute of your holiday season at the post office this year. Sign up for Stamps.com instead. There's no risk. With our promo code SCATHING, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in SCATHING. That's Stamps.com. Enter SCATHING. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. All right, Noah, we are in. Oh, man, so I swept all those chimneys for nothing? I mean, not for nothing. Chimney looks great. Thank you. A man wrote the Bible. A horse, which one? If it's a legitimate race. It is a slut, right? Cooking can be fun. Hey, I'm proud of a man. This week in Massachusetts. Well, we don't have a clear picture of the electorate, and we won't for some time. But when you consider the extent to which women's rights were on the ballot in this election, there's one thing I'm willing to say for sure. If you set a white woman in America on fire, 
they might not put the flames out if it means getting their hair wet. I mean, for fuck's sakes, ladies, we're the majority here. And if you need an example of how this shit works, might I suggest you look at Poland? As you'll recall from last week, Poland's extreme right-wing government just effectively banned abortion. And so the women of that country basically said, the fuck you did. In what was apparently the largest demonstration Poland has seen since the collapse of the Soviet Union, more than 100,000 people turned out in Warsaw to protest the decision. Protests went on for days, and the latest news, as of the time of this recording, is that the government has delayed implementation of the new ban. Meanwhile, back in the good old U.S. of A., Lindsey fucking Graham prevails in the most expensive Senate campaign in the history of the universe, even after saying that women could go anywhere in this country, quote, if you are pro-life, if you embrace your religion, and you follow traditional family structure, end quote. So in other words, you can go anywhere you want as long as it's somewhere he says you can go. He said a remarkably similar thing about black Americans about a week before that. And still, we send him back to the goddamn Senate. Of course, I can't blame the women in this country entirely. I mean, they voted better than the men did, at least. And it's also worth reminding myself that much of the time when they didn't, it's because they're victimized by the same shit we're fighting against every week on this show. And just in case we were in danger of forgetting that, plenty of Christian leaders were piping up to remind Christian women that God wants them to vote how their husbands tell them to. Like, for example, Jesse Sumter of the Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho, who took time off from packing hundreds of people at a time into small spaces amid some of the worst pandemic numbers in the country, to remind the church's Twitter followers, quote, Brothers, a friendly reminder for elections. Make sure your wife votes exactly as you do. End quote. And how the hell one makes sure of how their wife votes is entirely beyond me. But it sounds an awful lot like advocating for voter intimidation to me. So, you know, if laws ever start applying to religious people, he might have to worry about that. Anyway, I've got a page to refresh incessantly, so I'll wrap things up there and hand things back over to Noah, Heath, and Eli. Thank you, Lucinda. And in Vaccine the Light news tonight... Good news, Christians. You can cough on each other again. What's more, you can go, you can minister to people who have tested positive for COVID, let them breathe all over you, and then go hug other Christians. Or even lick them. And if you don't believe me, you're doubting the word of God himself. Was everywhere but New York, maybe you've heard of him. As interpreted (laughs) by Kenneth Copeland. Ah, you know, the word of God interpreted by Kenneth Copeland is usually just a giant glowing collection plate. So this is new. This is no, it is. It, well, he's, yeah. it's similar to. Okay, so you're probably thinking that Kenny learned this through some divine revelation or something, but no, no, he deduced it, did it with his deducement, and and he and he provided <laughs> <Did> evidence. <laughs> quote, yeah, quote. I was noticing today President Trump and his beautiful first lady without masks. They are immune. They are immune. <laughs> he said it twice. That's like it's in the quote. And this display of our president giving God thanks for helping in that time. And he walked out immune. Somehow. Glory to God. Woo. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Come on, man. We're immune. We are going through this thing with a Holy Spirit immunity from the works of the devil. End quote. <laughs> okay. Well, that's induction. He induced it. You did it with inducement. Okay, no, you're right. You're right. Um, yeah. So uh, I guess my thought is, prove it. 
Handle some snakes. Drink some fucking COVID. We, we'll become the scathing Christian if you prove it. Oh, Go absolutely. Ahead. I mean, heartbeat, we might be the yeah. scathing Christians by fiat, depending on what we learn about Pennsylvania. <laughs> okay, well, on... <laughs> he doesn't need Pennsylvania. Okay, so yeah, uh, that's pretty damn definitive. Uh, and as much as I think Christians should go out and start licking each other right away to celebrate the news, it's worth pointing out that this is not the first time that Copeland has claimed that God had cured COVID for some or, or all of his listeners. Uh, nor is it the the second time or the... I mean, I don't even think we're in single digits anymore, but, but this time was different because in the past, one was required to, like, touch his hand through your TV screen to receive immunity, or in the most memorable instance, Copeland would have to, like, keep the virus at bay by personally spitting on it. Um, so it's probably best to take a middle-of-the-road approach and only lick a medium amount of each other until we learn more. Yeah, stay conservative. <laughs> And in Thomas Equinus news. So you know what? Humanity the, doesn't deserve you, Heath, and America definitely doesn't <laughs> no, deserve you. That's brilliant. Big percentage. <laughs> Equinus. Equine joke. It's a horse. I'm going to talk about a horse thing <laughs> in a second. So despite their sterling reputation throughout history for being completely reasonable, the Chicago Police Department might have had a little stumble this week as part of their community outreach to the downtrodden white evangelicals <laughs> of the city, officers of the CPD celebrated the feast of St. Francis of Assisi by heading over to Grace Place Episcopal Church and Holy Trinity Lutheran Church to get a blessing for their horses. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so insensitive. Everyone knows all horses are Jewish. Uh, how's that? Because uh, they eat hay. <laughs> Moving right along. So this is <laughs> offensive. For several reasons. Also illegal. Yeah. The officers were on the clock and in uniform representing the city and doing a PR stunt for a magical tax-exempt horse-whispering service from some Christian sorceress lady in a robe. <laughs> and that's why the Freedom From Religion Foundation had to write a letter to the Chicago Police Department that basically said, wow, can't believe we have to explain this, but... Stop spending time and taxpayer money on a farcical theocratic ceremony. <laughs> Strange women lying with wands, distributing wards is no basis for a system of government and law enforcement. But, you know, they said it super nicely for some reason without any Mountie Python references. <laughs> okay, you say that, Heath, but did you know Chicago PD has never shot an unarmed black man who weighs the same as a duck? Never, not once. <laughs> huh? That's a good point. Keep that in mind. So the blatant disrespect for state-church separation is the obvious problem. But most importantly, <laughs> I'm offended because the FFRF had to spend fucking time on this, and they had to do it nicely. See, I don't know that they had to be nice. <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah, good point, but they did anyway. I mean, yes, the constitutional principle they mentioned is super important, but... The top-line explanation for the Chicago Police Department is, you're fucking stupid. That's stupid. Yeah. But the chief of police in exactly zero American police departments is a logical atheist person telling their officers, no, your job today is not horse magic. You're fired <laughs> for even asking. Fired for asking, yeah. So what we're trying to say, the FFRF, is that we'd be ha if you want to run your letters by us, we can remove the nice from <laughs> yeah. them. We'll do that before you send it. We're in. 
And finally tonight, in not fee tuss news. See, that's the pun you deserve this week, America. No, <laughs> How dare you? How dare you? <laughs> hey. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Lead pastor at Skyline Church. Still better than the chili of the same name. <laughs> in San Diego, California. And man who looks like if Alex Trebek shaved off his mustache and ate it, Jim Garlo. <laughs> took to the internet this week to voice his concern for a group of uncounted voters. And no, it's not the mail-in ballots. Mail-in? No, nope. it's not the okay. mail-in ballots that were thrown out or the people at high risk for COVID who can't vote in person. Jim Garlow is concerned for the 60 million aborted fetuses <laughs> who he claims all would have voted for Donald Trump. Well, okay, come, come on. We would have fucking eaten some of them in our <laughs> QAnon parties, wouldn't we? Come on. It's like it's like a Schrodinger's fetus situation. <laughs> Quote, I want to talk to you about something that's happening right here in our community and in our nation. It's the election. You tend to think of it as being Republican versus Democrat. It's not. You might think of it as being right versus left. It's not. It's right versus wrong. It's good versus evil. What do I mean by that? Funny how people on the left don't have to clarify what they mean when they say that. <laughs> what do you mean by that? One party, the Democratic Party, has the platform that allows you to dismember, to rip apart a baby in the womb with no anesthesia, right but to the point of birth. <laughs> what? The anesthesia is the... Yeah, <laughs> cool. Yeah, no, from now on, we'll inject the fetus with morphine. Yeah, That'll go great. Sure, man. <laughs> that makes you happy. Whatever you want, man. And one Democrat governor actually says you can kill the baby after it's been born. That is what? barbaric. End you... quote. So, murder? Yeah, there's <laughs> murder. There's a pro-murder Democratic governor <laughs> that you can't name because it's a secret? <laughs> you sure you're not talking about every Republican governor and the death penalty? Because that would make sense if that's what you meant. Or their COVID-19 response? Oh, yep, yep. That could be it. <laughs> I, sorry, that's the same. Repetitive. <laughs> and uh, as promised, he concludes, quote, 60 million babies that have been killed in the womb, if they could be polled, they would be voting for Donald Trump and Republican candidates because they would like to have the privilege to live. End quote. That's <laughs> all right. Well, them. I guess we all need a minute to thank a lady who killed her little Trump supporter in utero. So uh, <laughs> we're going to close the headlines for the night. Heath, Eli, thanks as always. Refreshing? No, he, we have to podcast. There's still a C, there's a C segment. When we come back, Hillary Morgan Farrow will finally admit that Christians suck. All good things must come to an end. Oh, that's so sad. And uh, and we're super hoping that turns out to be true of bad things, too, right now, Refreshing. obviously. Refreshing. Yeah. <laughs> lemon, lemon. And, well, there's one bad thing whose terminus is still up in the air, more or less. We can at least say for certain that we've reached the end of Mama Bear Apologetics, that book by Hillary Morgan Ferrer et al. Uh, that we've been breaking down for the last 31 years. So, yeah, it was bound to end eventually, even though there were times when I'd have sworn otherwise. So, Eli, uh, where does it all end? Well, Noah, this week we're going to tackle what I would say is the final boss of the entire book. Change of any kind in any form, because the last chapter of Mama Bear Apologetics is called Christianity Needs a Makeover, Progressive Christianity. Written by Elisa Childers. <laughs> yeah, okay. 
this book needs a makeover written by a new author. We hired to write our final chapter, <laughs> like a movie that needs a new act three. Because otherwise, the book was going to end with Hillary Morgan Ferrer talking about feminism. Yeah, so, right. probably a good move, actually. Jesus, it was bound to happen eventually. They've devoured everything in sight, and now they're eating themselves. <laughs> yeah. Yes, they are. Uh, and we're going to start this chapter with a metaphor so pained, I think there are Eighth Amendment grounds to dismiss it. Well, I mean, it's cruel. I wouldn't say unusual. We've read the yeah. book. <laughs> it's an and, yeah. not an or. So Elisa explains that progressive Christianity is like mixing all the sodas from the soda dispenser together. A little Marxism here, Wait. a little feminism there, and wham, you have progressive Christianity. But unlike the aforementioned gross soda mixture, which, based on your feelings about Dr. Pepper, I can only assume that Noah and Heath love, Elisa assures us that progressive Christianity is not harmless. That's correct. And the chapter? And the chapter, yeah, probably. Nailed it. Nailed it. Don't keep By talking. Way, for, for reasons I can't even begin to comprehend, that soda concoction when I was a kid, we called it a suicide. Okay, thank you so no. much, Noah. We called it that, too, but I was so worried that if I pointed that out, <laughs> you guys were just going to tell me that, like, my dad was hinting something to me, so... <laughs> I think maybe he's still... Hey, go ahead. Yeah, it could be both. It could be both. Yeah, I'm not saying he wasn't. Yeah, and just in case we don't believe Elisa, because that's fucking stupid, Elisa is going to tell us the chilling tale of when she, as a young mother, was invited to a discussion group at her church led by an agnostic. Thunder, lightning, lightning, thunder. <laughs> and Elisa knows what you're thinking. I guarantee she does not. <laughs> I'm not even convinced she would know what that would entail. <laughs> yeah. So you're probably thinking something as terrible as that could never happen to you. Well, guess what? Quote, little did I know. At the same time, there were groups, classes, meetings, online forums, and conversations happening all over the country, flooded with people questioning historic Christian beliefs, such as the atonement, the exclusivity of Christianity, the authority of the Bible, the literal resurrection of Jesus, the nature of sin, the definition of heaven, and the reality of hell, end quote. <laughs> Boy, isn't that just Christianity in a nutshell for you, though? Like, I learned that there were thousands and thousands of interpretations, all of them with the same amount of biblical justification so i set about correcting all but one of them <laughs> <laughs> yeah she concludes like with a fucking flashlight under her chin as far as i know i am the only soul in that class who came out with his or her faith intact the rest uh, went on battery to... i got to switch it yeah. okay she's slapping <laughs> it against her hand the rest went on to identify along with the church itself, as a progressive Christian community. Thunder, Ooh. lightning, cat scream. <laughs> da, da, da. <laughs> so everyone was still Christian, just progressive now. Mm -hmm. Which means Elisa saying, I kept my faith intact, literally meant, I'm very proud to say, I kept my bigotry intact. That's what well, that yeah. means. Yeah, those are the parts she's talking about them changing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So with the scary story section out of the way, it's time to roar like a mother for the last time, which I'm not going to lie. This, this made me a little sad because this is the last time I get to torture Heath with this terrible anagram. Actually, you know what? Acronym. I'm excited. Let's R recognize this fucking message. <laughs> they centrifuged Christianity and the evangelical sine qua non is bigotry. Please proceed. Tell yep. us about that, Elisa. 
<laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, Elise is going to point out what I actually think is a valid criticism of progressive Christianity, at least from a theological perspective. So if you dilute your religion down to saying nothing is certain, there are no hard and fast rules, according to Elisa, at that point, you can't also say your religion is based on the perfect word of the omnipotent, omniscient creator of the universe. Now, what does that I, I should you? caveat that <laughs> her solution is that the Bible is the perfect word of the God and we should act mm. like it. Well, our solution is for your woke friends to stop pretending that Jesus managed to slip Black Lives Matter into the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> when everyone was kneeling for Jesus during that sermon, it was a Kaepernick thing, actually. No, no, no. <laughs> stop no, it. No. You're also a problem. Right. But Elisa also fails to acknowledge that this, like, choose-your-own-religion fucking keep-your-thumb-on-the-page version also goes the other way, right? Which is why yeah. trans and gay rights can suddenly become central to so many people's concept of religious freedom, even while they're on their third divorce. Right. No, it's it's like if instead of spinning the couch to the left and coming in the other way, you just, like, watch TV in the front yard from now on. <laughs> yeah. So... After pointing out that progressive Christianity has no core beliefs, Elisa is going to tell us the five core She's beliefs to progressive yep. Christianity. <laughs> yeah. cool. uh, first up, a rejection of the exclusivity of Christianity, that Jesus is the only way to God. To which her response is, predictably, nuh-uh. And, <laughs> and she doesn't really give any evidence for this. She just dedicates a paragraph to shitting on Rob Bell again for describing God in terms of energy and force. And in summation of the book that I did not write, uh, all dogs go to hell. Great. <laughs> Just like those Marxist fetuses that get aborted in every single human being before 2,000 years ago. Great. <laughs> That's right. And most of the ones since. Yeah, exactly. the vast majority of other ones. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The second core belief of progressive Christianity a rejection of the atoning blood sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And again, she she just shits on Rob Bell some more. I've, I'm starting to think that he took her lunch money or something. And, <laughs> and if you're thinking of this namby-bamby, what if we weren't a human sacrifice cult stops at Rob Bell, she also tells us that, quote, in a blog post about how to talk to your kids about Easter, a progressive Christian children's pastor wrote that telling kids Jesus died for their sins could be psychologically damaging. And All right, now drink this blood or you'll be tortured in a lake of fire with those Marxist fucking fetuses. <laughs> and your dog. You're a child. <laughs> and I'm a grown-up. <laughs> yeah, that's what she's hoping for. Uh, so the third belief of progressive Christianity is a lowered view of scripture. And what she means by that, and makes very, very clear, is that some assholes think that rabbits don't chew their cud. <laughs> That's right. According to Elisa, any view of the Bible that isn't, this is the perfect inerrant word of God, is a lowered view of scripture. Also, wow. just listing the things that are like that. The Emancipation Proclamation, a lowered view of scripture. Mm -hmm. that, <laughs> yep. that's a we'll skip that one. Ta tag on the back of my shirt, lowered view of scripture. Okay, that's a good yep. one. I, mm -hmm. I didn't yep. sound as stupid. <laughs> <laughs> so the fourth belief of progressive Christianity is a redefining of words, parentheses, linguistic theft, and parentheses. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Quote, for example... When I told my agnostic pastor that I was uncomfortable with where some of our class discussions were heading, she sounds fun, he encouraged me to ask him <laughs> any question I had. 
He promised to answer honestly and said that no inquiry was off limits. I asked, do you believe in hell? And do you believe the Bible is divinely inspired? He answered unequivocally yes to both. That put me at ease enough to continue in the class, although I was very confused at how he could believe the Bible was divinely inspired, yet question its truthfulness. A few months later, flashlights back under the chin, I came to understand what he meant by divinely inspired. He believed the Bible was inspired much like the writings of C.S. Lewis or A.W. Tozer, but not in any special kind of way. And hell, <laughs> he meant it in a figurative sense, as in living out the negative consequences of bad choices we make here on Earth. And I was quote, devastated to learn that he was secretly being reasonable. <laughs> it's dogs and fetuses in a lake of fire. Am I crazy? Is nobody hearing this? <laughs> this ridiculous agnostic class. <laughs> Fuck you. I'm going to go to my one million moms meeting. Yeah. And last, but not least, the final core belief of progressive Christianity that, again, I just need to remind you, Elisa wants to reject is, quote, a focus on social justice. Yep. Those motherfuckers. <laughs> so we're back to our anagram. Now it's time to O, acronym. offer discernment. And Elisa's going to throw us a bone here. She She admits that, yeah, I mean... Technically, all the Christianity that doesn't burn witches at the stake is progressive, but like every other chapter of this book that we read, the problem isn't the progress people have wanted, it's the progress people have wanted the second the various authors of this book decided everyone had all the rights they would ever need. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, look, it's it's not actually that we think the Bible should be taken literally so much as that we're not allowed to use anti-gay slurs anymore, but Amazon will sell an apologetic <laughs> book. <laughs> she even points out that Christians sucking super hard is part of the cause of progressive Christianity. The problem, according to Elisa at least, is that people tried to reform the religion, not the people. Or as she puts it, doctrine doesn't abuse people, people abuse people. Yeah, maybe your lives matter if you stop resisting a little bit. <laughs> Which means it's time to, A, argue for a healthier approach. And Elisa admits that it can be pretty tricky to figure out what the right kind of Christianity is. Oh, so for a second I thought you were going to say that she admitted it was tricky to argue for a better approach than social justice, but <laughs> upon reflection I have no fucking clue why I thought that. <laughs> yeah, well luckily for us, there is a good way to pick the right flavor of Christianity. And it's the Bible. Or, as she puts it, quote, This is why we have the Word of God. It's vital that we adhere to the doctrine of biblical authority, that the Bible has final say when it comes to issues relating to our faith. If we want to have a healthy Christian life, believing in Scripture's authority is the only way to assure that your worldview is in line with reality. Yeah, it's about the intent of the Founding Father. And the fucking Supreme Court agrees. Fantastic. Yeah, it does. And finally, we're going to R, reinforced by discussion, by discussion discipleship, discipleship, and, discipleship and, and prayer. prayer. Yep. Nailed it. And I love that she uses this last section to plug her talk here. At the beginning of her talk, this is her little technique here, she puts up a picture of her daughter and talks about how cute she is. Then, at the end of the talk, she puts up a picture of another little girl who looks like her daughter. And when the audience presumably goes like, oh, she's so cute, she goes, that's not my daughter, idiots, but you didn't know that because you don't know my daughter. 
<laughs> Her point right. being, quote, the best way to spot counterfeit Christianity in any form is to know the real thing, end quote. Okay, what? not that I don't appreciate the fact that she figured out a clever thing to do about that once, couldn't think of a way to put it into the book, so just talked about what it's like <laughs> when she does it in her talk. Um, you got to be careful giving talks at churches that could be interpreted as, you should get to know my kid, lady. I just <laughs> Good advice. Yeah. 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 And she concludes this section with such a perfect quote, we should sell it on a T-shirt and donate the money to Planned Parenthood in her name. Christianity is not progressive. It's eternal. (laughs) (laughs) We're not evil. We are infinity. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, except they they went with the opposite of evil. But yeah, yeah, exactly. We're not the opposite of evil. All right. So now it's time for the last set of discussion questions. Gentlemen, are you ready? Sure, why not? Number one, icebreaker. When you were a kid, did you ever create a soda concoction like the one Elisa described? Why did you like it? Was it the taste or the freedom? Yeah, I did. It was Diet Pepsi and Tonic, though. <laughs> <laughs> not sure how to answer the question. That's what we had in the house. We had Diet Pepsi and Tonic. See, at the family, yes, I loved it. And yes, it was because I hated God. I knew it. I knew so, it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Number two, main theme. People are changing historic Christian doctrines to accommodate the times. Do you think the Bible is out of step with society? Do you think adherence to societal norms is the test of truth? Why or why not? I think Donald Trump's re-election is the test of truth in God. So, uh, I'm a Christian now? Or, or not, depending on what happens. Refresh. 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 <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, but, so, but not to be repetitive, but their argument here is... We shouldn't change Christian doctrines to accommodate modern times. We should change them to accommodate the time when the black people knew their place. Yes, exactly. All right, number three, self-evaluation. Do you find yourself drawn to progressive Christianity or repulsed by it? Yes. (laughs) How strong is your reaction? Infinity. (laughs) Evil. Why do you think you react the way you do? Ibid. (laughs) In what ways can you be discerning about what you read and listen to? Oh, I joined the Antifa Navy. Oh, so nice. Get into it. <laughs> Try right, to have so a boat I... rally. Try. See what happens. <laughs> All right, so I find myself repulsed because diet bullshit is still bullshit, and uh, I can be more discerning about what I read by letting Eli read the entire book one on one of these for a while. <laughs> Number four, brainstorm. Where have you seen these ideas in books, conferences, or devotionals? Hold on. Should I put a line on a piece of paper? And <laughs> no. No, not yet. Sad. I brought a piece of paper. I, I had a line piece of paper ready to fucking go. <laughs> Crumple it. Great. Asshole. Why do you think the message of progressive Christianity is so attractive? Oh, that was a hoax at the Democratic National Convention. We tricked you. So... Can you think of specific examples of progressive Christian thinking that you've read or heard? Uh, Well, I uh, heard about an apologetics book where women teach. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, release the bear. If you find yourself conversing with a person or your kids who've been influenced by progressive Christian thinking, ask him or her, how did you come to your conclusions? Keep in mind all the isms you've learned. Do they believe truth is relative? Postmodernism. Is he or she skeptical of miracles? Naturalism. Does he or she say that the truths in the Bible are too harsh? Emotionalism. 
Oh, I wasn't listening to their answer. I started walking <laughs> away. Yeah, no, I was, I was refreshing. <laughs> and that is the book. So, huh, guys, one last question. What do you think we learned from Mama Bear Apologetics? Oh. Ah. Uh, um, um, that's refresh. Maybe I can help. What are you doing here, Hillary Morgan Ferrer? <laughs> oh, Noah, I'm here to tell you what you learned from my book, silly. Um, okay, I guess. Uh, back in the good old days, we were set in our ways, and the Bible was true. Dare a duck came along, everything went wrong, and now we're run by the Jews. Kids today have thrown away truth, and by truth I mean God, that's what truth means to me. Everyone's postmodern, but me. I don't know, Hillary Morgan Fair. That sounds like a vast oversimplification of hundreds of years of. Who won't someone tell me please why nobody sees the lies that they tell? Self-help hugs you and cries while it sends all you guys straight to hell. Now I've laid it out in my book. If you just take a look, it's easy to see. Everyone's postmodern but me. But you understand that literally everyone except you. Hush now. Look, I know it's not easy to face. Your kids might think you're a drag. But if you don't do it now, they'll turn your kids into homosexuals. Danger, baby bear's face. If mama bears only knew. So buy my book and read my blog and check my podcast too. Everyone's postmodern but me. I mean, can you at least admit that maybe... I'm singing. Everyone is wrong as could be. Oh, if only they'd see. I could show them the way. Books full of postmodern lies. All a compromise so that you can be gay. Rich people have to be bad. Feminists going mad. Wanting college for free. Everyone's postmodern but me. Really? Everyone in the world? Yep. Everyone's postmodern but me. In the whole wide world. Everyone and everything from Star Wars to Lord of the Rings. Everyone's postmodern but me. sound like a sexy baby before we get back to refreshing tonight i want to offer a quick update on vulgarity for charity uh that's the annual fundraiser we do where we trade insults for charitable donations normally we start that in november but a combination of a very high number of our listeners being out of work 
and the fact that we still have a ton of insults that we have to do from the last year's fundraiser still is going to force us to postpone it this time around. So apologies if you've been looking forward to this and you've been wanting to get your insult in. I still encourage you to donate to our favorite charity, Modest Needs, uh, which you'll find linked in the show notes. But we don't feel right putting any pressure on anybody to donate given the current state of the economy. Uh, anyway, that's all the blast me we've got for you tonight. But we'll be back in 10,022 minutes with more. If you can't wait that long, be on the lookout for a brand new episode of our sister show, The Skeptocrat, debuting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Monday. An even newer episode of our sister show's hot friend, God Awful Movies, debuting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Tuesday. And an even newer episode of our half-sister show, Citation Nita, debuting at noon Eastern on Wednesday. Obviously, I'd be cheating you out of the outro content if I neglected to thank Heath Enright for helping keeping me sane with all his sick math skills. I need to thank the lovely and talented Lucinda Lusions for not making cupcakes this year. Also, I want to thank the quite lovely and quite talented Eli Bosnick for eventually agreeing to be talked back from the ledge on Tuesday night. Also, I want to thank Mike Wiseman from the Bible Says What podcast for providing this week's Farnsworth quote. Incidentally, if you'd like that question answered, you'll find a link to his show on the show notes. But most of all, of course, I want to thank this week's best people, and I'll do it by name, I promise, but I have to do that next week because it's been a really long couple of days. I have not slept much at all, uh, but I will compliment the shit out of your genitals. I will make it worth your wait. Anyway, if you want to give us money, you can uh, make a per-episode donation at patreon.com slash scathingatheist, whereby you'll earn early access to an extended ad-free version of every episode, or you can make a one-time donation by clicking on the donate button on the right side of the homepage at scathingatheist.com. And if you'd like to help, but not in a money-type way, you can also help a ton by leaving a five-star review, telling a friend about the show, and following at PIATPod on Twitter. Legal services for this podcast are provided by the law offices of P. Andrew Torres. Tim Robinson handles our social media. Our audio engineer is Morgan Clark. We'll also all the music that was used in the episode, which was used with permission. If you have questions, comments, or death threats, you'll find all the contact info on the contact page at scathingadius.com. All right, here we go. Should I just refresh it one more time? Yeah, refresh it one more time. A little <laughs> bit more Pennsylvania coming in. The preceding podcast was a production of Puzzle and a Thunderstorm, LLC. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. Warning, the following podcast doesn't care what words you're offended by. This week's episode of The Scathing Atheist is brought to you by electricity. Like, I don't mean to be so literal, but an awful lot of you got that shit on the mind today. Stay safe and stay warm. And now, The Scathing Atheist. I'm Ian from Frickin' Sweet, a Family Guy podcast, and even Peter Griffin knows that we did, in fact, evolve from filthy monkey men. <laughs> Monkeys. It's February 18th. And Jesus isn't the only one who'll let you finger his holes. I thought you do something about the Mars landing. Anyway, I'm no illusions. <laughs> I'm Eli Bosick. I'm Heath Enright. And from Joe Rogan's New Jersey. How dare you? Cincinnati Red State and Red Town Blue State. This is the Scathing Atheist. On this week's episode, Tennessee Republicans will be confused about how many vaginas they have. James Randi manages to debunk more liars without even being alive. And Joe Biden decides we were getting a little too First amendment in here. <laughs> but first, the diatribe. I guess it should come as no surprise to anybody that a guy in the fake education business is hard at work mischaracterizing the opposition to fake education, but it still pisses me off.
So, yeah, some lying asshole that works for Dinesh D'Souza's old college of Christian bullshit takes issue with American atheists' position on education. But since American atheists' position on education is unassailable, he actually had to make up some different bullshit opinion that nobody on earth ever had and then assign that to American atheists and then take issue with it which would be par for the course if the motherfuckers at Newsweek hadn't printed it. But since their standard these days seems to be has words in it, they did. So let me back up to the very important point that American atheists made back in January. Obviously, one of the most visible effects of the pandemic, for parents at least, are the repeated and often sporadic school closures. The efforts to make distance learning work on the fly have been a source of perpetual consternation across the country. But despite all the growing pains, it's actually working out really well for some students and some parents. So that, combined with lingering fears that a lot of folks aren't taking disease prevention seriously enough, has led many parents to give homeschooling a second look long term. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I should point out that I was homeschooled for a big chunk of my childhood, and I learned a hell of a lot more in those years than I did in the ones where I had to wake up at 6 a.m. and listen to a tennis coach read an economics textbook at me. Right. So when it's done right, homeschooling is a phenomenally good way of squeezing knowledge into kids' heads. That being said, it's not done right all that often. So I was homeschooled because my parents recognized that my inability to refrain from telling people to fuck themselves was problematic with both my teachers and my peers, and they sensed it was getting in the way of my education, and they were right. Far more often, the impetus is finding out that schools are teaching that we did, in fact, evolve from filthy monkey men. So homeschooling becomes a convenient off-ramp for people who don't want their kids to know facts. Even worse, it's a convenient off-ramp for physically abusive parents that don't want other people to see their kids on the regular. And that brings us around to American atheists. See, it's entirely possible to preserve homeschooling as an option without opening up to these perversions. But since those perversions are so often the fucking point, a lot of states are hesitant to enact rules about mandatory testing, review of the home environment, and standardized curriculum requirements. After all, as soon as you do that, you're well on your way to forcing religious parents to admit that evolution is real. And both political parties are hesitant to do anything at all about that, which is exactly why Nick Fish, president of American Atheists, felt the need to bring it up. See, 38 of the 50 states have no requirements whatsoever about the qualifications instructors need to teach in home. Right. So so if a homeschooler hires, let's say, a spelling teacher to come in, that teacher could be Eli. OK, 41 states have no requirement for evaluating student progress at all. And just in case any laws might accidentally apply to homeschooling, 13 states offer up religious exemptions to whatever poultry requirements exist. In fact, only Arkansas and Pennsylvania have even gotten around to enacting laws that prevent homeschooling in households where one of the adults has been convicted of homicide, aggravated assault, rape, or child abuse. And this is not a small problem. American Atheist's press release pointed to a 2018 study that showed 36% of kids being withdrawn from public schools were living in likely abusive families. And that's to say nothing of the abuse done when you deprive a kid of the kind of education that they're going to need to take care of themselves in the modern world. In other words, it's exactly the kind of thing that you want a civil rights watchdog group like American Atheist raising a stink about. And that brings us to this story's antagonist, Paul Glader. Glader is an associate professor at King's College in New York, that, which is like a real college, except with religion instead of information. I, I mean, 
you know, look, it's one of America's 221 finest liberal arts schools, but it's still obviously named to trick people into thinking you went to the one in London. Anyway, so Glader writes this whole stupid fucking piece about how much atheists hate homeschooling because I shit you not, we hate it when kids spend time with their fucking parents. That was his takeaway from all the statistics that American atheists offered up about, you know, physical abuse and lack of educational standards that we hate love. Here's his actual fucking line. Quote, it's unclear if these secularists are afraid of children having more time with their parents in general or only for those whose children are completely detached from public schools and whose parents offer religion within the curriculum. It's got to be one of those two things that we're pissed off about. You couldn't more clearly mischaracterize the objection if you interpreted the press release as Nick Fish claiming his penis was the emperor of Mars. But that didn't stop Glader from claiming it, and it didn't stop Newsweek from promoting it. And in his half-ass attempt to demonize something that was going to, you know, sound scary to his face, he wound up signing his name to an article that indirectly attacked an effort to hold abusive parents accountable. Now, the problem, of course, is that a Christian advocate for homeschooling cannot admit that any of the concerns that American atheists raise are valid. Closing the loopholes that they're talking about also deprives Christians of the ability to hide information from their kids. And for people like him, that's the whole fucking point. At the same time, he can't admit that an organization called American Atheists could have a valid moral concern that the church wasn't already addressing, what with morality being under faith's sole jurisdiction. And look, I'm not asking for fucking perfection here. I'm asking for a motherfucker to refrain from an obvious and gross mischaracterization of another person's position that was clearly crafted to degrade their reputation. And if I can't get that from all the Christians, I'd hope I could at least get it from the goddamn professors of journalism. They're talking about your Jesus. We interrupt this broadcast for you a special news bulletin. Joining me for headlines tonight are the name and quest to my average wind speed of an unladen swallow. Heat then writing Eli Bosnick. <laughs> Fellas, are you ready to provide some answers? I'm gripping it by the husk. Is that helpful? Yeah, very. Yeah, I'm, I'm very yeah. Holding it by that. I mean, to be fair, he's always doing that. Well, <laughs> so, I like to carry a coconut. Yeah, well, you know, you, <laughs> it's like a towel. You never know when you're going to need it. Exactly. And our lead story tonight. On Valentine's Day, Biden signed an executive order to reestablish the White House Office of Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships. Go fuck yourself. And it's a real <laughs> testament to just how trapezoidal the Overton window is that several prominent atheists have gone out of their way to argue that this is no big deal. So let me be clear what's happening here. Biden is going out of his way to reinstate a government program that gives taxpayer dollars to churches as long as they pinky swear not to use those dollars religiously. It is a textbook violation of the Establishment Clause that was started by George W. Bush. So it doesn't have some like storied long fucking tradition of hundreds of years or any goddamn thing and has absolutely no place in our federal government. But after four years of now Christians are allowed to eat everybody else's cheese type executive orders, apparently atheists have been cowed into thinking that this is fine. But they pinky promised Noah with their pinky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, just to be clear, the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. So if these people really wanted to get technical, yeah, they can have an office that does nothing. Right. Like they can have the office, but none of the laws. <laughs> but the entire point of the office is to meet with religious leaders who demand laws that respect an establishment of religion. So that's obviously not what's happening. Yeah. 
Now, this box of shit does come with a very nice ribbon. Biden has already signaled that he'll be tapping Melissa Rogers to head up the office. She led it during Obama's second term and earned plaudits across the board from atheist organizations. She did a great job, including humanist groups, inviting atheist voices into the dialogues and pushing for policies that emphasize the ostensibly secular nature of the office. And that's good. It honestly is, right? If you got to have that office, she's the one to run it. And apparently Josh Dixon's going to be her deputy director, too. And he's awesome. He's a good guy. He was instrumental in setting up humanists for Biden. And he certainly respects the wall of separation, at least. Right. But but if we got down to it, right, like if we could get Melissa at lunch, once she got over how terrible it is to watch me order, mm. she would say, like, Yes, that rabbi did come back from the dead and ascend to heaven. Well, well there's that. Yeah, exactly. I don't think she'd get over the order, though. No, like, no. Like, no. You never get over that. that. She didn't invite my voice in when she was in charge of the Obama thing. I never got a call. <laughs> Melissa. <laughs> so, no, I should also probably note that Biden is, like, reinstating this office because it fell out of use under Trump in favor of Paula White's office of grift and unconstitutional emoluments. So, like, <laughs> the box of shit is replacing a box of radioactive shit. They put this really nice ribbon on it, and this is all a step in the right direction. But still, a better bad organization isn't good, and having good leaders for a bad institution is still a net bad, especially since we can't do lifetime appointments or anything. Thing, and the other team was putting climate change deniers in charge of the EPA way before Trump ever showed up. Right. And like all moderate religion, as soon as it's not moderate religion's turn to be in charge again, all that will be there as a well-established and well-funded office of doing God stuff, which wasn't a good idea in the first place. Right. Yeah. The only way this becomes slightly less unconstitutional would be creating the Office of Secular Outreach and all that office does is literally build a physical wall that blocks the door to the office of faith-based and neighborhood partnerships. It's still unconstitutional, right, but that would yeah, be like exactly. slightly less bad. <laughs> but we'll get a cool guy. We'll get Hemet. Hemet will do it. He'll build the wall every morning. No, no, look, yeah, he'll throw some food over for him and exactly, shit. Yeah. yeah. Now, look, ultimately, this is a terrible idea. The only reason anyone in the atheist community thinks otherwise is because it's been around for a while. When Bush set this shit up, the FFRF sued the fuck out of him and missed a chance at the SCOTUS by one goddamn vote over it. There have been several occasions where judges found that these funds were being misused for direct evangelism and worse. From Shocking. The beginning, Shocking, I said. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, from the beginning, it was used by the Bush administration to line the pockets of religious supporters. At best, it filters tax money intended for social services through groups that deny the rights of LGBTQ people, oppose common sense birth control, and question the foundations of fucking science. And given that we're still watching religious groups use orphans as leverage in their stand against gay rights, maybe this isn't the best time to increase our fucking reliance on them. Even if they can make it through a brunch without throwing holy water at us. There you go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and in Ravi Don't Preach News. Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias passed away in May of last year, and they'd barely finished digging the grave before his ministry confirmed, what the rest of us have known for years, that he was a thieving, raping, cheating liar who lied about almost everything it's possible for a person to lie about. So much so that it stands out compared to the curve that we grade Christian apologists on. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's impressive almost. Yeah. So let's start with some of the less rapey lying. While he was alive, Zacharias claimed to hold three doctorate degrees. 
No, he didn't. Nope. He claimed to have been a visiting scholar at Cambridge University. Nope. No, he wasn't. <laughs> he described what? himself. We can as... check on these things. Why? <laughs> you... How? How did he think this would go? He described himself as a senior research fellow at Oxford University. No, he wasn't. <laughs> and my personal favorite, he claimed he was the chairman of the Department of Evangelism and Contemporary Thought at Alliance Theological Seminary. No, he wasn't. And that <laughs> department doesn't exist. Jesus <laughs> Christ. It exist. <laughs> wow. And keep in mind, this dude was a professional Christian apologist. He didn't manage to get degrees in nothing. Right. He, he had to lie about the nothing he didn't it, have. It's not like he had to lie about his doctorate in neuroscience. He could have showed up at Cambridge and been like, hey, how much is God real, right? And they'd have been like, yeah, man, right this fucking <laughs> way. He's lying about Alliance Theological Seminary. That's like pretending you have a degree from DeVry. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll find this is my Trump University diploma. <laughs> but it turns out that padding a resume made of nothing wasn't close to the worst stuff he did. So, first off, it's incontrovertible at this point that he used tens of thousands of dollars that were donated to his ministry to pay massage therapists to fuck him. Mm. Which, I want to point out, is fine to do with your own money. Right? That's downright neighborly. <laughs> it's not so much okay to do with money that people give you for God stuff. Yeah, yeah dude, you're supposed to do that metaphorically. That's the yeah. job. <laughs> but way more importantly... He apparently forced himself or indecently propositioned a bunch of other women. And when they came forward about his behavior, he told them they were putting, quote, millions of souls in danger, end quote, by stopping his work. Mm. Okay, how do religious leaders manage to sell that idea that they're the uniquely qualified person to just to hand you a Bible? I mean, like. They're like the track coaches of souls. Just run fast and be Christian. That's it. Done. Do they show people stats about their winning percentage? How does that work? Now, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries has come forward to say how very, very sorry and how very, very sad they are that this happened. And moving forward, they'll be doing both fuck all and nothing to make sure this kind of thing doesn't happen again. But if you're wondering who's at fault... For Zacharias's behavior, don't worry. Colin Hansen, editor in chief of the evangelical website The Gospel Coalition, has the answer. Um, so Rabbi is Zacharias, it very much Ravi Zacharias is a fault. It was Ravi Zacharias, probably. It's cell phones because we failed to beat Ravi Zacharias to death with them sooner. Okay, all right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so here's what Hansen had to say about the rapist who stole church money. Quote. Digital communications helped Zacharias in his abuse. Indeed, it would be hard to imagine this crime without the ubiquity of smartphones for taking and sharing sexual images, end quote. He's basically trying to argue his way out of a DUI by offering to turn state's evidence against Jim Beam with this one. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. He continues, we used to think that the Billy Graham rule and windows on the pastor's door would protect victims. Did we? Terrifying. Terrifying. Terrifying statement. Now we know they're more likely to be targeted through text messages on burner phones. End quote. Yeah. So now you need a window on that door and to not hire a rapist. Yep. That yeah. So you, you used learned. to think that because you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> Right, that's an idea that showed up in your brain pre-disproven. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. God damn it. He concludes, 
sex is increasingly disembodied with the ubiquity of porn. Oh, it's also porn's fault. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because of it, it jumps us out of our body, apparently. Abuse follows the same pattern. Ministry policies for prevention and protection must fully account for this shift. End quote. So, yeah, just remember that when your colleague is discovered to be a serial abuser, don't swerve from your shitty agenda even for a second, Christianity. Don't swerve. Yeah. <sighs> right. Next up in headlines, magic is cheating. Okay. It's all cheating. They're all <laughs> cheating. Either they double-lifted two cards instead of one from the deck, or they looked you up on Facebook. That's the whole thing. <laughs> pretty sure that's the whole thing. Eli, right? That's, like, pretty much the whole thing? I can neither confirm okay. nor deny. Yeah. Well, bottom line, they definitely... Didn't commune with your family member on the atemporal astral plane in order to predict a car accident that severely injured a child. And even if they did do that, that's super duper fucking evil if that person doesn't travel around the world preventing car accidents, which they never <laughs> seem to do. Uh-huh. Well, I guess we shouldn't be surprised that exactly what I just said was the main theme in a recent episode of Sid Roth's uplifting liar show it's supernatural spoiler it was not magic okay but i like i feel the need to come to defense of eli's chosen profession here Thank it's you. not always just hot reading and double lifts sometimes yeah. it's that there was one more ball than they were telling you about <laughs> okay, okay. Oh, okay yeah that's another thing that's okay. it's, it's it's a complex craft if we could just get to the story and stop pointing out which of our hobbies may be something that most children grew out of at age eight i would appreciate it. <laughs> okay well, we're not going to stop doing that. So, um, the episode in question has Sid Roth telling the story of a magical guest from last month named Chris Reed. And when I say guest, I mean liar. Mm-hmm. Back in January, Chris Reed did a mentalism act, and Sid Roth is now describing that as, quote, the most accurate prophecy I've ever heard with proof, which is honest, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> But that was by accident. Well, yeah, the fact that all the other prophecies were tied at zero factors in. So. Yeah, mm-hmm. technically most, but it's weird how I said it there. So <laughs> here's the so-called prophecy from Chris Reed. Quote, I just had a vision that came to me, and I believe there's going to be someone watching this broadcast. And I believe this person lives in Kansas, okay? Is that okay with you guys? That yeah, it, no, it's, it's fine. Kansas? Yeah, I'm good with cool. that, yeah. Moving on, now that it's okay. I think it's a woman, and this woman's either son or grandson was involved in a car accident in the last two or three months, and there were some injuries that came about to this grandson. I believe this woman's name is Evelyn, and I believe she's around 70 or 71 years old, and I believe that there is a Joshua, perhaps a David, uh, I want to say a Janice? That's the end of the quote, the end quote. Yeah. And from there... Warlock Reed doesn't explain how Joshua David Janice is involved. He's just speculating that maybe there are those people somewhere. And from there, he just adds a mailing address for Evelyn's job at a daycare and closes with some bullshit about how almost dying in a car accident is a great way for that grandson to find God. To be clear, that's the God who almost killed that child in a car accident. Mm-hmm. Wait, 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 wait. There's more to the prophecy. I'm also seeing... That she needs extra moves on Candy Crush. (laughs) (laughs) So so apparently this Evelyn person heard about the show somehow, and she called in to confirm the magical prophecy. 
about what had already happened. Oh, a prefacy. <laughs> I got you. Okay, okay. yeah. <laughs> yeah, not even a prophecy, a prefacy. That's correct. Postfacy. And <laughs> just a few other important details. Hemet Mehta did a very casual Google to check on this, quote, prophecy, and he found that all of the following was freely available information before Warlock Reed taped his prediction. Evelyn liked It's Supernatural on Facebook. She posted about her grandson's car accident back oh, in December. Christ. And <laughs> Evelyn's age, job, and job location are all on the Internet. You know, just like everyone who's not an old-timey train hobo or a fucking spy. <laughs> <laughs> Which means... That means that they were like, hey, Chris, you got anything for your appearance this week? And he was like, yeah, give me one second. Scroll, scroll. Yeah, yeah. I got a prophecy. God, you're talking So, moral of the story, it's never magic. If it ever was magic, James Randi would have lost a million dollars so many times. In case anyone's not familiar with the late, great James Randi, he was an ethical magician and professional skeptic who offered... A million dollars to anyone who could demonstrate any kind of magic ability without him and his team catching you cheating using non-magical, obviously cheating stuff. This was available for 51 years and nobody ever won. Over a thousand people tried because I guess they thought they could trick James Randi or maybe some of them thought they were actually a wizard. Some I don't know. Definitely nobody did, ever yeah. won. Never happened. If any real wizard in the entire world between 1964 and 2015, wanted $1 million, it was available. So, never magic. It's never magic. And just, even if it was somehow magic, God is a giant asshole who hands out the occasional vague prediction about horrible shit he's planning. Even if there's magic, it's definitely not... There's magic and you should give money to a church. Right. Or to Sid Roth or to Chris Reed. Eli, don't do it. No, it's it's not even the same show, man. Just like that. Don't do it. Young husband, young right. husband. There it is. <sighs> and in QAnon Plus news tonight, the American <laughs> Enterprise Institute, a right-wing DC think tank, conducted a Jesus fucking Christ, just how stupid are we survey of American conservatives, and the results were not <laughs> encouraging. For example... More Republicans think Antifa was mostly responsible for the Capitol riots than believe Trump encouraged his supporters to do it, even though the latter is on tape. Uh, are you serious? More? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. More than half think that there was widespread oh. voter fraud in the 2020 election, and better than one in four believes the basic tenets of the QAnon conspiracy theory. And to the surprise of literally nobody, those numbers just get worse when you hone in on white evangelicals as your subgroup. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just for the record, the basic tenet of QAnon, we're going to talk about QAnon a little bit more in a second, but the basic tenet is that Hillary Clinton and a bunch of Hollywood are part of a satanic potluck group that fucks and eats children. Yep. That's the lowest level and most plausible part of QAnon. The most discerning and credulous members of QAnon just believe that thing and then stop. Yeah, because, right. Because, you know, everything else they come up with is unreasonable. Right, which is ridiculous because everyone knows you don't potluck your child sacrifices. You get them through Uber Eats. Why would or, you go Or Wayfair. Somewhere? Or Wayfair, <laughs> yeah. exactly, yeah. Now, 
there's an important caveat that a lot of sources leave out when they're reporting on this survey. We still tend to think of Republican, Democrat as an approximately equal way of dividing up the conservative and liberal wings of our political system. But self-identified Democrats are about 25 percent larger as a group, at least. And the GOP has been shedding its sane members at a steady clip for about four straight years. So the fact that a significant percentage of Republicans think something doesn't mean what it used to. Still, People are not leaving their religion over Donald Trump. So examining it from the perspective of evangelicals is, to me, a far more useful way of examining it than by political affiliation. Yeah, and among evangelicals, believing in Hillary's cannibal pedophile fuck cult is by far one of their most reasonable beliefs. It's mm-hmm. physically possible. Well, no, right? That's true. Hillary yeah. babies eating and fucking are all things that exist. Yep. That's yeah. like the top of their list. It, Hillary fucks and eats. It's downright reasonable, I tell you. <laughs> downright reasonable. <laughs> and, and look, I, I get that religious people believing nutty shit beyond the prerequisite nutty shit that is their religion has become something of a background hum to us. I, like It should be terrifying, but it's so ubiquitous that we tend to forget about it. But There's a new nugget of terror that's hiding in these numbers, which an AEI spokesman pointed out. See, normally conspiracy theorists tend to be socially isolated people. They tend to not interact with a wide range of people, which is kind of an essential component of believing easily disprovable shit, right? (laughs) Helps, yeah. Yeah, but, 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 but less so now because the evangelical QAnon supporters did not exhibit that tendency, which means they've reached this, like, bullshit critical mass where they can be demonstrably wrong in large groups without fear of anyone ever correcting them. Terrifying snowball. And the last time that happened to a conspiracy theory, it was granted constitutional protection and exempted from property tax. (laughs) Yeah. And now they own all of Utah. Yeah. So uh, everyone keep an eye out for our first QAnon Supreme Court justice any day now. Yeah, no shit. We might already have one. Yeah, obviously. And in CMA Pump News, an openly queer artist is sitting in the number one spot on Christian music charts. Huh. And damn it, if she didn't manage it without getting caught saying the N-word. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like just making country music is real close to using the N-word all by itself. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's in there. It's between the lines in most of those songs somewhere. Yes, in spite of being married to a woman, most of her music being a critique of the church, and earning that coveted iTunes explicit tag, Grace Baldrige, known professionally as Semler, snagged the number one spot on iTunes this week with her new album, Preacher's Kid. And Christian's are losing their goddamn mind. Which in turn is making more people buy the album. As one reporter put it, this is creating a sort of GameStop effect, if you will, for the Christian music industry. Not what that is. Except we're pretty sure this one doesn't end with asshole billionaires making twice as much money as they (laughs) lost. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This is not the GameStop effect unless, you know, the newsboys almost went bankrupt and then got bailed out by... DeGarmo and Key, and then <laughs> Evanescence made a billion dollars while a bunch of other LGBT Christian singers lost their life savings. So that's not, it's not the GameStop effect. <laughs> New rule, you don't get to call anything the GameStop effect I- until you explain, like, I don't know, if you, you know, you know what? You just don't get to say that. There you, you go. Know, no saying GameStop effect. Stop Thank using you. That. Thank you. This, this rule also applies to the verb form game stopping. All right, all right. I consider myself game stopped. Now, regular listeners, you're interdicted. (laughs) 
Call Sideways. Now, call Sideways. Now, regular listeners will remember Baldridge for her documentary series, State of Grace, which covered topics like the dangers of gay conversion therapy, bigotry within the church, and never mind all that, I found one person who says God loves me, so maybe we can keep our stupid beliefs after all. But, yeah, but she's definitely a force for good. And most importantly, her success makes Dave Dobenmeyer very, very angry. So, <laughs> by all means, get out there. Buy your stuff. Every time you do, an angel loses its wings. <laughs> well, we just we, we cut the feathers off the bottom so they can't fly. <laughs> yeah. Guys, Anna plays bluegrass. We can take country music back. I, like, Thank you. I, I can see that you think, like, why the fuck would we want it? But sometimes it's worth taking something just so people who suck can't have it. Yeah. Yeah. And Anna would make it good. She would make yeah, it good. No, she, yeah. And finally tonight, QAnon is still a thing. Mm-hmm. It is still a thing. I don't know how, but it is. For years, they've been ugly crying about their latest conspiracy theory and making prophecies about the day of reckoning. But every single time, somebody checks and it's fucking nothing. No. Nope. Professional journalists go on TV and they're like, hey, look, no basement. You can't <laughs> fuck a child and eat it inside the nothing. Nope. Look, Hillary Clinton in the sunlight. There she is. Look, <laughs> I personally tackled George Soros. I held him down and I took off his shoes. Look, human feet. It's human. <laughs> Unbifurcated everything. But they could always still cling to that day of reckoning thing. They call it the storm. Mm-hmm. When Donald Trump was going to round up all the satanic pedophile cannibals and have them arrested. But now that Trump is gone, they're just flailing. And their latest flail, their latest epic flail, they just moved the prophecy a little bit. (laughs) The the storm was supposed to be January 20th, Trump's last chance to do it. And that obviously didn't happen. So now it's March 4th, just just because, I guess, they just wanted to bump it a little bit. And their new rallying cry is, hold the line, because Donald Trump is going to come back as president on March 4th. They're positive. Okay, guys, th- this was not a random date. My birthday is the 5th. <laughs> QAnon is getting me a fresh crop of their own <laughs> tears for my birthday, and it's exactly what I asked for. Okay. Okay, QAnon, if you're listening, my birthday is in September, and I would like one Jonestown. Please. <laughs> <laughs> so here's why Trump is going to become president again on March 4th. And as you probably already assumed, it's all about the District of Columbia Organic Act of 1871. Of course. Why else would the flags have gold fringe, Heath? (laughs) (laughs) So, according to the Fremen on the Land Sovereign (laughs) Citizen Movement, and now also QAnon, we stopped being a country in 1871, and now we're technically a corporation. That's because Washington, D.C. became, quote, incorporated yes. as the state of government for the United States in 1871 in that bill. And that can only mean corporation like business. Obviously, There's no yeah, other of use course. of the word incorporated. And the owner of the corporation, of course, is the Rothschild family, because, yes, they are. And uh, also international bankers as a group, just yes, all also are owners, the bankers so. that aren't here in America, they also own it somehow. And it's all official because the Rothschild family tricked that law writer guy in Congress in 1871 into capitalizing United States when he wrote the act, 
which means all the references to the name of our country in that law were secretly describing the United States Corporation. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, no, and it's it's literally it's also they say why American flags in federal courts have gold fringe because they're <laughs> admiralty flags operating <laughs> under maritime law in the land equivalent of international waters. Yep. According to people who think Hillary Clinton is fuck eating babies under a pizza arcade that doesn't have a basement. <laughs> right. And, and hey, thanks to our Supreme Court, corporations are people. So now we're a corporation and a country and a person. It's yeah. tricky. It's like a, yeah. <laughs> so, I know we can't abort us. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So that's official. We're a corporation owned by Jewish bankers. And therefore, every president since 1871 didn't really count. Because as we all know, corporations can't have presidents. That's not a word you would ever use with a corporation. Which means Joe Biden, he's just some guy. And technically, he's a prisoner in a foreign land called Washington, D.C., which is just a branch of USA LLC owned by the Rothschilds. Therefore... Yada, 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 Donald Trump on March 4th. (laughs) And then some magic happens. Yeah, right. (laughs) It makes me really sad that I actually do see how they got there to March 4th and everything. (laughs) Okay, but what I love about this is, like, Joe Biden isn't president because elections aren't valid because we're a company, not a country. But Donald Trump is president. Right, yes, yes, (laughs) because election. (laughs) Yep. Now, I think my favorite part of this is imagining their thought process as each of these prophecies fail. Some amount of these people are definitely thinking, all right, fuck, Trump was in on it. That was definitely (laughs) Trump's part of it. But most of them are still on board, and most of them are super religious, so they think God is involved, which means they think God was totally planning to get around to stopping all the kids from getting fucked and eaten. They thought God was going to do that back in January, but then God procrastinated on that (laughs) again more he's been doing that the whole time regardless they're all excited for march 4th and so is the trump international hotel in dc where they literally jacked up all their prices for that week of march 4th to almost double no and people are booking it so they can be there when trump de-incorporates the white house (laughs) jesus again meta sorry do you think the people showing up on March 4th are making backup plans? You know, are, no. they, are they like, okay, so obviously the president will overtake the evil communist naval law, <laughs> but just in case he doesn't, we're going to do a walking tour of the museum, okay, guys? <laughs> just in case. No, I think they're going to scramble to get that walking tour at the last second. <laughs> yep, I now. think you're right. <laughs> they're going to go the next day. Yeah. So I know this all sounds pretty scary, but don't worry. We we might be owned by the Rothschild family, but if they try to tell Joe Biden what to do, he'll just be like, no. Yeah. <laughs> and then they'll threaten to take all the incorporated land they own, and he'll be like, no again? Yeah, it's pretty that's awkward nothing. when you secretly own ma- shit. Even if this was true, that's nothing? No. <laughs> All right, well, while we try to sort out what E.E. E. Cummings knew and when he knew it, we're going to close out the headlines for the night. Heath, Eli, thanks as always. America, LLC. And when we come back, we're going to introduce you to the reason I know so much about that silly shit Heath was just talking about. <laughs> Well, we 
we've put it off long enough. Okay, that's not true. We put it on as long as we could get away with. But after reading the Bible, the Quran, the Book of Mormon, the Case for Christ, and Mama Bear Apologetics, you'd think we'd have built up a tolerance to this shit. But no, every time we crack open a terrible book full of dangerous bullshit, it hurts like the first time. I feel like my dad was just trying to help us out. He was like, they don't want to start that yet. You know, I, I can delay this for a minute. So, and that's why I'm anything but excited to report to you this week. We'll finally be cracking open David Icke's delusionally titled Everything You Need to Know But We're Never Told. Solid title. Solid title. Yeah, yeah right, right. Really succinct. Now, I, I shouldn't, I can't say anything. Now, I should point out <laughs> that I'm the only one who actually bought a physical copy of this book. And, and I, I bought it used. And I bring that up to A, allay some of your moral concerns. B, have a reason to point out that this book smells like old newspaper, and it's like the cheapest printing you can possibly do. And C, I want to point out that he knows people want to read his book without actually paying him for it, because there's no fucking way this copy was used when I got it. <laughs> there's no fucking way. So guarantee he sell a, he's got like a dummy account selling fake used fucking books. <laughs> For like a couple bucks less than he's selling the new one for. Yeah, Noah actually got it with a free copy of Triggered by Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> and a stick of dry bubble gum. Right it was inside. really for the bubble gum that I went. It's, yeah. I, I wanted to get the match. Yeah. And for the record, <laughs> I got my copy from archive.org, which I'm pretty sure doesn't pay out residuals, yeah. <laughs> so I feel okay. All right, so this book has 18 chapters, and not counting the front matter of the postscript, 689 pages. That works out to an average chapter length of over 38 pages per chapter. That's a lot of David Icke to take all at once before you warm up. So rather than diving right into chapter one this week, we're going to kind of shit our way through this and limit ourselves to the introductory shit. But don't worry, it's not like we have to get all the way to the first chapter to get to some good, crazy, the no. table of goddamn content <laughs> reads like a list of websites your conspiracy uncle tries to get you to go to get a couple examples the inversion terrified of truth saying the unsayable and perceptions of freedom <laughs> and just for the record noah was able to make a list of crazy chapter titles just now without including Mind control and shape-shifting royals <laughs> that's chapter Literally. seven it is yeah Right, no, I didn't pick the weirdest ones there. I just picked the ones that sounded most like conspiracy theory websites. And then he opens like a goddamn 14-year-old quoting song lyrics that really spoke to him the first time he smoked weed. That includes a quote from Don McLean that is not from American Pie. And yeah, right? There's never been a better intro quote that operates also as a warning to stop reading right the fuck now. At the start of his book, we're told this is the 689-page equivalent of that guy at the bar yelling about how you have to really go deep into Chumbawamba's catalog. It's not just about pump something, assholes. The book. Yes. Well, not just that. The quote is from Vincent, his song about Vincent Van Gogh, the schizophrenic <laughs> yes, right. whose mental illness yes. ended in his suicide. Yes. <sighs> and. And as though he's trying to seem sane compared to something, he opens with a couple of quotes that I initially assumed were just from Facebook comments that vaguely agreed with his Jew lizards are coming to eat us posts. Uh, what's that? <laughs> it's impossible to Google me without hearing that I'm full of shit? Well, that's because everyone but me is a liar. Yeah, right. Yeah. It, the book is, that's the book. You just described the thesis of the book, basically. Mm -hmm. 
More or less, yeah. There's also this first quote has a lot of like, no, you're the bigot kind of a theme to it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, by this point, more than a few people had figured out that lizard was code for Jews or vice versa. So he's going to get out in front of us by letting us know he's not a bigot. He's crazy. And a bigot. Damn it. Damn. <laughs> yeah. This was another quote, by the way. So, like, basically he started his book. A great philosopher once said, am I being detained? That's that. Guy with no mask at the front door of Walmart. All right, yeah. time to start my book. Great. Well, okay. So, you know you've nailed it in the title department. When you feel the need to include a quick explanation of what you were going for with that <laughs> title before the book. Like, seriously, there's a mini <laughs> section at the beginning of this labeled... Title definition. There is. The first words that we get from the author of this book. Okay, the title page is confusing. Sorry about that. Just stay with me. <laughs> <laughs> explain the title. This book is technically everything you need to know ever, but not, it's not all, yeah, just, it's, yeah. it's for, but that you haven't been, it's not. It's, he's, it's a good title. he's like, he starts off explaining that all of the necessary information for human survival isn't actually in the book. So, you know, to, you need to like inject insulin or something. You should talk to a professional. You're just not going to find spirit stuff. For spirit, it's everything you need to know for spirit. I just love the idea of some guy slamming this book down. Oh, now I need to buy a second book? False advertising. Yeah. False advertising. He also says, this book is a start, not a finish, which I read as, don't expect this to make sense by the time you get to the end. You have to keep going. No. He also says, the book is written in layers. And then he explains what he thinks that means he's like, all right, so I'll write something and then, you know, layers. I follow it up with another unit of writing right after pages, pages. It's right. That's the word. It's written in pages. <laughs> that's the term for word. Layers. I put them in order. sequential pages in order. So enjoy my book now that you understand how that works. And then we finally get to this introductory essay titled On the Road to Now, with now in quotes as if he's hedging his temporal bets. (laughs) Opens with an Isaac Asimov quote. I believe the quote was, please don't use my legacy to promote anti-scientific worldviews based on racism. Also, be careful when you get a blood transfusion. Isaac Asimov. Oh, (laughs) he got AIDS from a blood transfusion, everyone. I I know. I know. So... (laughs) Yeah, thanks for it's funnier when you clarify. Fun, yeah, topical. even even yeah. funnier. It's a, okay. It's not funny. Fine, it's not funny. <laughs> it's a little. Funny. So, all right. So the book literally begins with an "I know you are, but what am I?" about whether he's crazy or the rest of the world is. Everyone always makes fun of me, but as it turns out, they are the ones who are the joking, laugh. You are. He literally, that's the beginning. He literally started with you are. Yep. Yes, exactly. Premise one, you are. (sighs) He explains that he's so extra sane that he's now looped back around to where it looks insane to normies. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the whole time I'm reading this, I'm like, guys, I didn't spend any time at all in Outbreak of Crisis of Faith arguing that I'm not batshit crazy. Was that a mistake, you think? (laughs) Clearly. I mean... Nobody reading that book was in the airport in Ireland, so I think you're fine. No, that was a perfectly okay. sane reaction to the situation. <laughs> no, so, <laughs> so he explains that our belief that he's insane is just based on what other people in control want us to think that sanity is. And I'm like, nah, man, mine is based on the way you constructed that sentence. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and he's so poetic in this section. Do they call me mad because I see past the veil of their lies? 
No, it's the lizard thing. Okay. okay. All right. No, yeah, the lizard. I get it. I see how you'd get there. Okay. <laughs> exact quote. There are none so crazy as those who wrongly believe they're sane. And from there, he goes on to say, and another thing about how sane I am, it can safely be said that rumors of my madness were exaggerated. <laughs> You can say that, like, you won't get in trouble if you say it's safe to say that. Yeah. And, hey, fun fact, if you've written more than two sentences about how sane you are in your book, you're wrong. Yep. Is it funny? Yep. Universally correct. So, yeah, so he explains how humans can't handle considering stuff outside of their belief system, which must be why we hate movies, video games, stories, novels, and drugs so much. And then he goes... Lao Tzu says, care about people's approval and you will be their prisoner. And I'm like, oh, so you just spent a 44-line rambling paragraph telling us how insane you aren't because you don't <laughs> care about our approval. Gotcha. Got it. And again, for context, he's a fucking sports announcer. Right? Imagine reading a book by Kurt Schilling that began, In the world of the blind, I walk with sight. <laughs> Lao Tzu once said, Just start your fucking book, man. <laughs> Cryptic. I wonder what he meant by that. Anyway, before we get going with my book, what's the deal with smartphones? Right? Oh, God, yes. <laughs> yes. So he gets some biographical material that takes zero seconds to get to the old man back when I was your age. Shit. Right, right. But but he says it as a compliment to himself. He says, quote, yeah, life was simpler then and you had more time to think, ponder and daydream my default state. End quote. Like, that's a good thing. Dude, you're writing a book, not trying to get me to fucking match with you on Tinder. <laughs> <laughs> And then the Green Party chose him as a national speaker for him, which lines up nicely with the kind of judgment that we get out of our Green Party here. <laughs> the Green Party. We seem stupid, but we're actually dangerous. <laughs> and again, he's like trying to act like there's a mystical force behind the fact that every time he'd lose one job, he would get another one. Right? <laughs> he says doors were synchronistically opening and closing. Like, what was going on? I had no idea. These doors, synchronous, that, I mean, that's all that doors do. But, <laughs> but just describing existence in the time dimension as yes, doors yes, mystically yes. doing the thing they do. Yeah, he's blown away that weeks after he joined the Green Party, they asked him to be a speaker for them. But he was a famous TV presenter. Right. Right, if Nicole Kidman started working at my magic show, I'd mention it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Put her right out front. And then he explains how it was actually him that broke up with television, not the other way around. I don't know what you've heard. But yeah. it was me that I the quote is, I am tired of the television world, which I found vacuous and full of its own self-importance. End quote. Anyway, back to my book about how I know all the secrets of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> and then, okay. He describes what I'm pretty sure as a layman are classic symptoms of schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. But since it's untreated, he thinks he's telling us about a mysterious presence that actually does accompany him <laughs> yeah. into all the empty rooms he goes into. Yeah, he was in an empty room and he was like, I'm sure there's some kind of presence here. And that's when I said, if there's anybody here, please contact me. Literally next sentence in the book. So a few days later, I went to a bookstore. <laughs> 
So he just stood there waiting in silence for three days, presumably, in that Eric hotel room, being like, this is going to happen. It's getting awkward now, but now if I, if I abandon it, I feel like right when I leave. Or, or the metaphysical forces of the universe choked in the moment. <laughs> he was like, is anyone there? And they were like, oh, fuck. Uh, hats. Never mind. We'll, wait. we'll, we'll get him in the bookstore. We'll get him in the bookstore. <laughs> Yeah, and then he he describes like fits of catatonia and hearing voices in his head, which could only mean not schizophrenia to him, apparently. Mm. And that's when he saw a psychic, and she was a very accurate. So you would be surprised how accurate. <laughs> He's not just a sucker. She knew things. Yes, yeah, just for the record, she was healing his arthritis psychically he went psychically, to a psychic sure, arthritis yep. healer yep so he's laying down on a bench and she's bending his knee and he's like hey hey hey!" so in terms of my knee um any chance there's an ancient chinese guy with a message for me from the astral plane <laughs> and she was like yep definitely sure the fuck is so just you know come back for a few more sessions and i'll tell you that in pieces all right yeah right <laughs> a little bit at a time yeah so then he goes into this long string of complimentary prophecies that he bought from that psychic <laughs> right the person being paid to cater to his ego game all about how he's extra magical and spiritual and and he's been chosen cuz he's the most courageous of all the people <laughs> and then all of the prophecies of things he was entirely in control of, like self-publishing a certain number of books and quitting his job, came true. All of those ones came true, yeah. But uh, also part of the prophecy, there will be a different kind of flying machine, very different from the aircraft of today. So I guess that one was just a misdirect from the ancient Chinese guy. To right, well, yeah, so eventually they're probably... Well, ancient <laughs> Chinese guy didn't say it had to work, and there have been different <laughs> kinds of flying machines. And uh, also part of that prophecy, time will have no meaning, except for the hourly rate from me, the psychic arthritis. <laughs> right, yeah. Exactly. And what it feels like to read this book, so, uh. you know... <laughs> We haven't even gotten to the book yet. Yeah. And, and and then he tells us about his sweet trip to Peru. Yes, the <laughs> Peru, where legitimate spirit stuff happens because you know, brown people in mountains. Yeah. Okay. And countless coincidences and synchronicities, Noah, also. <laughs> the hotel could accommodate a late checkout, as it turned out. Coincidence? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think so, Noah. Interesting. Uh, at this point, I just wrote, oh, my God, I'm reading about David Icke's semester abroad. Yeah. Where did I go wrong? <laughs> oh, God. So he starts telling this story, and nothing happens in the goddamn story. It's so amazing. But, like, he it, he walked up a hill, but, you know, profoundly. <laughs> yep. And then information was drilled into his brain. And also his ass? Yeah. I think. Okay, that's what he's saying about another flow coming the other way, right? He was taking it from both ends, yes. That would make a lot of sense. So, so yeah, he stood there for some amount of time, and then it rained on him. Right, like, he tries to sell this as this big, life-changing occurrence, but what really happened is he walked up a hill, and then he stood there until he started getting all wet, and then he went back to the car. <laughs> he went back. It's supposed to be this magical story, but in reality... He's just a giant asshole to a taxi driver. Yes, right. That is exactly. what is that story. He makes this Peruvian taxi driver pull over because of voices in his head. Then he walks up this little hill, stands there for an hour while this taxi guy's just like, what is happening? He gets <laughs> soaked by the rain. 
Also, I'm pretty sure struck by lightning is what actually happened. That's oh, that what he seems yeah. to be describing, but not knowing what happened. He got struck by <laughs> lightning. He's soaked by the rain. And then he just walks back to the taxi and gets in the back seat and gets it all fucking wet. And then made the guy drive him a few more hours making weird noises of somebody who just got struck by lightning and smelling like seared flesh the whole time. Okay. But the best part of this story is figure three. Oh, yes, yes. Which is a photo of him recreating this momentous moment. But... It's just a photo of him standing in a field with his arms in the air like an asshole. Yeah, right. <laughs> figure three, I look like a dumbass. Why is that? Yeah, he thought we needed a visual <laughs> aid of holding arms up. Yes, but Peruvianly, yeah. <sighs> all right, so then he, he went home, now all the way crazy, and he explains that it took him a while to process all of this new shit that just been laid on him in Peru, which is why the stuff that he says now is irreconcilable with the stuff that he started saying back in the early 90s. <laughs> right. Yeah, this is when he very publicly made an idiot of himself on national television. But don't worry, everyone. It's not because he's a jackass who couldn't pull off I'm going to wear green forever. It's because his brain was loading the mystical truths of the universe like a PlayStation 2. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Exactly. I got to mention this. When he did that infamous TV appearance, the first thing that happens is he walks out on stage, tries to eat a cookie, and chokes so badly, almost yeah. to death, before describing himself as God. It's so good. But he explains this downfall as a, quote, incredible synchronistic adventure, end quote. And the synchronicity he's talking about is that, like, just when he would need to know something, he would, like, go find a book or a video about it. It's like he was living in some kind of information age or something. <laughs> I describe my adventure as synchronistic. All the now stuff just keeps lining up. It's, all <laughs> it's like one thing and then it's like over and over. Thing. Doors opening, closing, now, 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 now. It's like right on, synchronistically. So, yeah, I guess uh, time, well, yeah, so, yeah, time still has meaning, so. Well, uh, there's that, yeah. And the wormhole airplane isn't happening. <laughs> but, uh, ooh, turquoise, I'm the godhead. <laughs> yeah, he might as well be stealing sections of this book from the DSM-4 at this point. If ever there was a section of this book that was going to make me feel bad for David Icke, it's this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it'll come back. And then he tackles the, but if you'd known this shit this long, why didn't everything in this book come up in any of your previous 20 